Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Grimecast. As always, I'm your host, Nutchucks, and with me, as always... God, I can't believe that Nutchucks doesn't know the difference between Terry Schiavo and Maria Shriver, <laughs> your friend, Robbie. I forgot her first name. It is Terry Schiavo. Uh, You're saying Shriver? There's no R in that name. Schiavo, I think. We're not looking this up. This is not factual. This is just picturing <laughs> me picturing the headline of what you said, which is former governor Arnold Schwarzenegger divorces his longtime wife, who is now on a ventilator and suspended animation. Well, He'd rather flee the marriage than pull the plug. That's the situation. Okay, so uh, it is Terry Schiavo, but it's spelt uh, different than what I thought. But his wife... Is it, is it spelt with a T? It is uh, T-E-R-R-I. Last name is S-C-H-A-I-A-V-O. That's not the part that matters. No, it's not. (laughs) Okay, Uh, so apparently Arnold Schwarzenegger um, putting his wife in a vegetative state is the reason that Nutjuck said, you know, I guess guess Rick and Morty's pretty funny. No, it was South Park. Uh, It got me back into South Park uh, for a few episodes, but it was the episode where Butters runs into the kids and is like, guys, guys. The Terminator's divorcing Skeletor. I don't know why I found it so funny, because when I imaged that, all I could think because Arnold Schwarzenegger was the Terminator, but I'd never looked at his wife as looking like Skeletor before, and it just made me laugh. So I was like, I'm going to have to check this out. And I watched the my, episode. My awareness of Maria Shriver, primarily as a youngin, was her cameo in a wonderfully underrated Schwarzenegger film called Last Action Hero. Do you remember Last Action Hero, Chucks? Oh, yes. I, I said turn around. It'd be a 180, not a 360, you fucking moron. Charles Dance is a treasure. Uh, for the uninitiated, um, I want to say it was 96 is when it came out. I'm actually going to look this up. Last Action Hero is a meme movie well before the age of the internet and memes. Where? The premise is uh, that... 93, excuse me, yeah. I, Whoopsie. It was the 90s, a different time. The joke here is that a young kid growing up in New York with a single mom, where's dad? Important question. He's looking for father figures on film because he is introverted, he's geeky, uh, he looks, you know, handsome, but life is hard, and he uh, flees school to go hang out at this old movie theater in his neighborhood, or near his neighborhood, where an aging old man uh, is the projectionist for the movie theater. And the theater's, like, in the shitter. It's gonna get shut down pretty soon. But they're still eking out a little existence. And this bleak hope, the kid goes up the uh, graffitied and and ruined rooms to go watch action films. And uh, one of the action franchises that's in that particular universe is uh, Jack Slater. And Jack Slater 3 is, you know, it's hot shit. It's a really good movie that uh, our, our, our young Danny Madigan loves watching. But Jack Slater 4 is on the horizon. And that's going to be the big premiere, right? That's the big action thing, because Schwarzenegger's playing Jack Slater, and it's the 90s, and Schwarzenegger's still very much hot shit after Terminator 2, uh, before governance and all those other Maria Shriver events. But I'm talking a lot about this. Why am I talking a lot about this? Because the premise is beautifully simple. The projectionist lays a little story on our kid that ends up with the idea of a magic movie ticket that has a will of its own. It's very cheeky. I think it's a Loki artifact, or possibly a polymorph Loki himself. And amidst watching the premiere, the previous screening, it's a screener. Danny Madigan's going to be a movie critic when he grows up. Um, the ticket enjoys the movie so much that the ticket basically uh, transports Danny Madigan into the movie. 
And so, as you might expect as the audience, it's now an isekai film. It's a fish-out-of-water story of real-world kid who knows all the movie tropes is now in a tropey action movie and is starting to say all the things that action movies are going to do. And the characters in the movie refuse to believe him. So it's actually my first isekai as a kid, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> was pulled off fantastically with all the action movie tropes. Speaking of the Terminator, as Chuck said, at one point... Uh, hmm, I forgot the actor's name. That's a Buster problem. Stallone? But, no, but that's also a joke. Ah, shit. Well, not to pause things down, the bad guy from Terminator 2 walks out of the police station where Jack Slater, Schwarzenegger's character, and the kid are going inside of. So it's just, it's it's 25 years before Ready Player One, and blink if you, blink and you miss it references, oh, it's that guy, oh, it's this thing, oh, it's this thing. And for about two-thirds of the movie, it's this hijinks adventure where the kid tries to solve the plot of a movie he hasn't seen yet, but he knows how action films go, though, so he's trying to direct the main character who is this invincible action lead through all the beats. But in doing so, he discovers that the action hero he thought of is a continuity character. And so when you have, oh yeah, he's the action guy whose marriage failed, and his daughter is like this badass girl who takes apart guns and she knows kung fu. Like that apparently all wears on our main protagonist because he didn't want his marriage to fail, but it did. So now he's haunted by that. He wants his girl to have a normal future, but that's impossible because she takes after her dad, so he's very concerned about her. As he as he complains, they walk into a new apartment that they have to now stay at, and our main character just discharges his pistol at the uh, at the closet. Bang, 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 bang. And the door slides open, and a ninja falls out dead with an Uzi. And the kid goes, how'd you know there's a guy in there? There's always a guy in there. It costs me a fortune in closet doors. Just He's just sick of the shit. The, the main action hero in the fourth installment of a series is sick of his own shit and he wants an escape but he can't but remember how i said two-thirds of the movie is that well kids that magic ticket is in the world with us and charles dance the bad guy gets a hold of the ticket and he completely understands what's this all about so now the bad guy can win because he takes the ticket and he uses it to escape the movie into the real world through a portal not really he didn't mean to do it then but it happens so our heroes have to then escape back into real-world New York. So now, two fictional characters and a real boy are in New York, and they're discovering that tropes don't work. There's a brilliant scene, I think. I'm talking a lot, but Chuck's, fuck you. Sit there and listen. Um, where the bad guy tries to discover just how different things are outside of the movie logic. So he walks up on a dude working at a, at a car garage and says, Excuse me, I had a question. Yeah, what can I do for you? Well, and he just shoots the man dead. And he waits, checks his watch, a car drives by, he discharges the gun a couple more times in the air, says, Hello! I've just shot somebody and I wish to confess! And somebody from the seventh floor goes, Shut up down there! And then our bad guy just looks at the camera and does a shit-eating grin, because he understands, Oh yeah, no, I could really do some damage here, this is great. And so the, the crux of the reference that at the start of this whole side discussion of Last Action Hero, please go watch it, fantastic film. It uh, it, the, the the bad guy's plot is his plan is still a bad guy plan of I'm gonna get all the movies for all the villains and get those villains out of their movies into the real world so we can perform a true sinister cabal thing. But there's a sequence for the premiere of this film because remember Jack Slater Four is a new movie. There's gonna be a grand premiere. The bad guy of movie four finds and extracts the bad guy from movie three 
to go kill the actor who is Arnold Schwarzenegger, but he portrays Jack Slater. So if you kill the actor, logically, movie logic anyway, the the the, the, the hero goes away. You get to win forever. So there's a scene where Arnold Schwarzenegger and other luminaries, such as Jean-Claude Van Damme and Jim Belushi, they're all there, going to the premiere, doing their things. But there's Skeletor, as Chuck said, next to uh, Schwarzenegger, just sort of saying, please don't plug the, the hotels. It, it's, very, it's cheesy when you plug the bar. Don't endorse it. No, 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 but it's a good idea. I have to, have to find a way to cross-market. All that shit. But then in 93 uh, graphical technology, you get a confrontation between Schwarzenegger and the fictional character he portrays in the same scene. <laughs> Wonderful lines. Just the Ghostbusters level of, of quotability here. Slater turns on Schwarzenegger and says, Hey, I don't like you, okay? You brought me nothing but pain. And then he walks away. I imagine the actor had no context of how that would feel. But how often does a fictional character whom you embody get to talk to you and say, I'm not okay with you. Whatever the fuck this is, I'm as real as you are, and this is terrible for me. You get to go offset to your trailer, I get to lay there in a ditch bleeding. Not okay. Yeah, so Maria Shriver. <laughs> yeah, so we before we started, we were talking about, uh, by the way, it was uh, Patrick Robert. Robert Patrick was the T-1000 you're thinking of. Thank you, thank you. Uh, Robert Patrick is, is a BAMF. Yep. I had to think of, I was like, is it the, the, the Howard brother, the guy who plays the, the guy in the raincoat? And it's not, it's Tom Noonan. Tom Noonan, hey, hey, hey. Uh, they look very similar. Ian, uh, Ian McKellen played Death in Last Action Hero, didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, he reprised the character from the Seventh Seal. Just little little Death Gandalf, just there for you. Again, the fucking interaction between Danny Madigan, the real boy, um, spoilers for a movie you won't watch, but please go watch it. Uh, Jack Slater is injured, but these are real world bullets, so it's really a big injury. He's gonna bleed out and die. And the kid says, "We gotta take him back to the theater and save him." But previous to this, by sheer accident, because the ticket is powered by Loki, as we discussed, uh, Ian McKellen portraying Death in the Seventh Seal is in a different theater, and it just senses that a new opportunity has arisen because it's the powers of, you know, death. So Ian McKellen just steps out of the screen and starts haunting the streets of New York, walking solemnly. He just sort of looks over and touches a guy, and the guy starts coughing himself to death. But death is not malicious. Death is utterly fair, and it was that person's time to go. So even as a fictional character, death performs in a universal way. Sorry, Chuck, I know. You struck a nerve. This is a a favorite film of mine. Oh, I know. The interaction (laughs) between Danny Madigan and death walking glumly in its black cloak with its symbolic scythe down the aisle to go look at the guy. Danny Madigan draws a pistol and says, Hey, no, don't you take him. I know how this goes. Who stays? Who goes? I'll tell you. This one fucking stays. And Death, calmly, expressionlessly, Gandalf out the hat, stares down, says, Oh, I was merely curious. He's not on any of my lists, he says, meaning Jack Slater. Pause. But you are, Daniel. And Daniel, Danny Madigan, just inches from shitting himself from, from fear, says, Now? And Death smiles wistfully and says, Oh no, you die a grandfather. You're a very brave little boy. Unfortunately, you're not very bright. And then he delivers a little hint as to what might help resolve the crux. But just, I don't know, Chucks, let's pretend you're in a position where you're staring down a cosmic force and you whip out a gun. How comically impotent do you look from the outside? You look pretty bad. 
And and by the way, Ian McKellen never, didn't play Death in the Seventh Seal. It was uh, Binked Urcott. Okay, Eckhart. retcon, retcon. It was always Ian McKellen. Retcon, it was yeah. it was always the gay gray wizard. Magneto played Death in the Seventh Seal. Yes, you're right because this movie is chock full of references, and basically, well, the guy outside who, of the guy who played it yeah, died 22 years earlier too, so it's kind of hard to get him back. Unless no. Death decided to resurrect him for were, the movie. Were you not listening? We're not listening. Take the fucking magic ticket, rub it on the movie, and then get the guy out. Why hey. am I the one writing the script? Fuck you. Anyway. <laughs> uh, again, as I was going to say, I, I, I hijack this bitch. It's just what I do. Basically speaking, reminiscing and discussing this film, and we really should rewatch it and do this more in depth, I think. Um, oh, most definitely. This, this just shits all over Ready Player One. Oh my god, this shit's all over that idea. I never thought about this movie as an isekai. It absolutely is. Wow. Rating, 6.4 out of 10, say the critics, of 93. Yeah, the same kind of people that said Blade Runner is a piece of shit. And then 25 years later go, wow, that was a good one. Anyway, <laughs> F. Murray Abraham is an actor who played Amadeus in the film Amadeus. Or was he Amadeus, after all? Uh, who? Wait, wait. What's his name? Uh, F. Murray Abraham played John Practice because we need more punny characters. Holy shit, that movie's older than what I thought it was. Yeah! <laughs> Antonio Solari. Uh, oh, that's right. He's supposed to be uh, Amadeus's uh, rival. Yeah. But in real yeah. life, he, he isn't his rival. They were actually both highly... God, the guy who played Amadeus who kind of let himself go. <laughs> Well, you know, eventually you, you make it on life. You get fat and happy. I can't blame you. Yeah, no. He, he was Danny a... told me to trust you. He said he killed Mozart. <laughs> Mo who? Zart. I, I kill a lot of people, Jack. I can keep track of them all. Yeah, he was also in Frankenstein. I still have not watched Young Frankenstein. Would you like to take a moment to uh, just explode with excitement over the recording track? The same way I did for, or a similar way I did for Last Action Hero about Young Frankenstein. Because we know the tropes, we know the lines, but you notice how I sprinkled the lines between prose? Uh, I can't do that with Young Frankenstein. I can definitely do it with Blazing Saddles. But that would be something I have to rewatch because uh, I don't know if I told you with the strange interaction I had at a at a coffee store. Well, that, you say a few things, yeah. Yeah, where I was at a nutrition place. So I'm sitting there at the nutrition place, and this was about a month ago, and I tell him about Blazing Saddles. I'm like, look, man, if you really like funny movies, you need to watch Blazing Saddles in any Mel Brooks film or stage play that he wrote. Because I'm like, The Producers is a Mel Brooks play that he wrote and got turned into a movie in the 70s, and then they redid it. And so I tell him about Blazing Saddles. So, oh, last week I show up at the place again, and he tells me, hey, man, we're talking about movies, and this black gentleman walks in, and he's like, "Man, I really." The black guy goes, "I really like campy movies, like cheesy B movies." I'm like, "Have you ever seen Velocipaster?" And he's like, "That's no. not a B movie. That's a Z movie." Yeah, that's 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 very bottom tier. I'm like, "What about Killer Clowns from Outer Space?" No, have you ever seen Attack of Killer Tomatoes? He's like, "I have seen that." I'm like, "Have you ever seen Blazing Saddles?" And the guy goes, "Man, I just watched Blazing Saddles. I got to show him the the scene where the sheriff comes to town." I'm like, "No." No, <laughs> like the worst scene. I'm like, but fuck it. It's his place. He can do whatever he wants. And it's it's uncensored. So the whole scene, uh, the, the movie is set up with a bunch of, I wouldn't, well, it's supposed to be the 1870s. So a bunch of black men building a railroad. 
And what they want to do is they want to get rid of it. There comes a plot after they find out that they have to reroute the railroad because of quicksand. And to get the town to run away, the governor is going to appoint a new sheriff. I cannot remember the actor's name, but he is a black gentleman. Uh, the whole movie is, and I'm going to state this now according to Mel Brooks, is satirical looking at the movie industry in the 50s, 60s, and 70s where essentially black men couldn't be lead actors. Um, no, the, the movie, it, I have first-hand experience of this, the movie should not be seen flatly as a sincere statement. No. There is a filter over this movie. If you watch Starship Troopers and say, What's the big deal? It's just dudes shooting bugs. You did not miss the point. You left the building, entered a different building, and are just yelling angrily at a corner in an empty room. Blazing Saddles, if you watch it flatly, say, man, this is just some... I don't... What is this? You're not paying attention. Correct. Sorry, Chucks. Keep going. No, no, no. Uh, so, essentially, uh, Mel Brooks plays Governor Lepetame, uh, and he assigns... Cleavon Little, who's the actor, uh, his character's name is Bart, as the new sheriff for this town. I believe it's Rock Rockridge. And as the as he's coming up on his horse with the sheriff badge on, you hear like this orchestral jazz band playing in the background, and you're thinking, "Oh, this is kind of you know not something you normally see, but it's funny." And as he's walking up, you see the jazz band, and he high fives the jazz band and tips the piano player, and he starts walking into town, and like the town drunk keeps looking over and you're like do you see the sheriff yet <laughs> and he's like no not yet and he looks through the spyglass again and he's like or the spyglass the uh tell what is that telescope it's not a telescope is it, it we'll call it a telescope uh sure, it's, he, it's, a, it's a portable tel telescope he goes the sheriff well, is a and right uh -huh. as he's supposed to say the n-word a bell rings they're like oh the sheriff is near strike up the band Everybody starts playing the band. He's like, no, God damn it, the sheriff isn't. Another bell goes off. And all of a sudden, like he's, they're like, oh, yeah, he's getting closer. Keep playing, keep playing. And it does it a third time. And all of a sudden, right as he starts strolling into town, everybody sees that he's black, and the band stops playing, and the town greeter starts reading off this, like, we, the citizens of Rockwell, would like to <clears throat> congratulate you and give you a wreath. Are new and he drops the N word, and everybody just. It, and by the way, I'm in a a public a public place getting a drink with this black dude watching this, and I'm like, oh my god, dude, this. I'm, and I'm in my cop uniform nonetheless, so this makes me look even more racist than it already is. Don't you worry, nothing bad will come of this. Oh, it didn't actually. It was kind of funny. Um, he thought the the scene was funny, but so as he comes up there, he takes uh, Bart takes the wreath, he's like, oh, thank you. And he says, excuse me while I whip this out. And right as he does, everybody's, <gasps> and they all draw guns and point it at him. And so to get himself out of the situation, he pulls a gun on himself. He's like, all right, everybody back up. Oh, I'm not going to use the word. He says, or the N-word gets it. And everyone's like, oh my God, he's serious. Everybody put your guns away. And they're sitting there. He's like, but what do we do? Oh my God, they're freaking out. And he's like, I'll shoot him. I'll do it. He starts backing off. And all of a sudden, you hear this old white lady's like, someone needs to help that man. Shut up, you'll get him killed. And he starts backing off more, backing off more. And then he walks into the sheriff. And that's the end of the scene that he shows him. And lucky, luckily for me, he thought it was hilarious. And was laughing. He's like, that's actually pretty funny. I'm like, oh, thank God. Like, I don't want to. That I, requires self-awareness. That requires a degree of, no, no, I've, 
I've seen this. This is fine, but I haven't seen it done like this. This is pretty good. Because using more modern comparison parlance than we've had among us, even, the movie is more than that scene. And that scene happens early on in the movie. It is not unlike the end of episode one of Invincible. It will get a reaction. And your reaction might be, no more for me, thank you. Or it might be, oh, let's see where this is going. This could be, hmm, let, let's look. Yeah, it's harsh. I get it. And this is language that we find problematic now. Who knows what happened in 20 years. But everyone seems to be laughing along. And no one seems to be really hurt by this. The setup is explicit for the sake of getting your attention. Let's see what happened. But the gentleman you showed this to, that might have sold the idea. Hey, more of this movie should happen. I want to see what happens here. And that's 50 years ago. Good old 1974, right? Yeah. Far we've come. He, I, I was surprised because I'm sitting there. I'm going, man, this is going to turn out bad. Uh, something's going to happen. And I'm going to have to explain to somebody why I decided to recommend a movie that has jokes like this that's you know almost 50 years old. Well, but let's... He, Chucks, you also aren't necessarily the most welcoming presenter. You're sincere. And you're very excited. But you don't use the sort of coaxing or directive language that I do to qualify what's going to happen. It's a lot closer to, check this shit out, you'll love it, and a slap on the back. That's what he did, essentially. So I'm trying to explain to him what the movie's about. And then he just pulls it up, and they he starts laughing. And I'm well, like... Of course. I'm like, okay. No, for, no foreplay, just get it right to the dick. Essentially, I'm just like, okay. Like, shit. And just that's... bullet sweats like fuck 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 fuck. <laughs> Essentially, uh, but I I think my favorite scene from that movie is where uh, Bart asks Jim, who's played Bart is Cleavon Little, the sheriff, and uh, Gene Wilder is Jim, is the uh, deputy sheriff or deputy for the town, and Bart looks at him and he's like, you know, Jim, why don't you shoot anybody anymore? And he goes to the whole elaborate story one time. You know, he's the best shooter in the West. Everybody knew him. And uh, one day he walked. Into, yes. He walks into town, and this little kid tells him to put it up. I laughed and turned around. This little kid shot me in the ass. And he's like, "Well, what do you mean? Like your hand seems steady." And he pulls up his left hand, and it's still. And he's like, "Yeah, I know, but this is my shooting hand." And he pulls up his right hand, and he's just shaking all over the place. I, I don't. It, it's it's great to me. It's silly writing, and I, I find it marvelous. For and the timing, the timing as well. It's mm -hmm. on point. Mel Brooks is a very funny man. Yes, and uh, I tried explaining the producers, and they were just when I told them about the song that they wrote for the the play it was called "Springtime with Hitler." Uh, they were just like, "You," I was like, "You'll have to watch the damn movie. Just watch the movie. You'll understand." Because I I have only seen the producer. I've seen the newer producers in high school, and we only got to a certain part. And the I, it's essentially my understanding. It's slightly different, but not too different from what uh, Mel Brooks wrote back in the late sixties. But it's a good movie. It's a series of good movies. Yes. Uh, I would highly recommend watching any Mel Brooks film. Uh, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, uh, Blazing Saddles, uh, Young Frankenstein, or Frankenstein. That way, if anybody gets the reference, they'll watch it and they'll laugh. Uh, I didn't know. Somebody said in Young Frankenstein that the term when Igor says Frabrucker, it's supposed to be glue in German. And I'm like, I don't know if that's true or not. LeBrucker? Brucker, I think is what he says. So that's why it's supposed to be... No, it's just glue. Kleb, Klebler. Klebler? No, that's not even... No. Kleber. Kleber. Yeah. I, so no. No, not even there, there, There's a different joke going on there. And it's probably one of those clever jokes that's buried in there. 
but it's about as intelligible to the intended audience as naming your pistol Sturm und Drang in Destiny. Yeah, you did it. Yeah, it's very clever. Who gives a fuck? Not for the intended audience. No, not. Stephen Fry having a sex tape. Not for the intended audience. It's really impressive what you did there, Stephen. Please don't. Now, uh, movie appreciation uh, is, is something that we preach in this particular program and context. We're not very good necessarily being welcoming, but uh, we're enthusiastic. I'm looking through the list of John McTiernan films, and I'm understanding that John McTiernan has quietly shaped my childhood. Uh, there's only a few that I haven't seen, but considering the director is responsible for Predator, Die Hard, Hunt for Red October, Last Action Hero, Die Hard with a Vengeance, The Thomas Crown Affair, and The 13th Warrior, I mean, those are all families staples. How is it that we gravitate towards directors that do what they do quite well? They're not the best directors. They're just really solid in what they accomplish. Now, I haven't seen Medicine Man, Rollerball, or Basic ever or in a very long time. But even if they're lowly rated, I'm curious. Because sometimes you get a capable director with a terrible script, and what they produce is the best version of what could have happened. He hasn't done Uh, much recently, I think. No, no, it's it's nothing for 17 years. And no. that's okay. No more needed. Do you see what he gave us? That's fine. I was going to say, on Blazing Saddles, I remember that I forgot, now we're back around to this. Uh, in recent delving in various media channels, I came across a discussion of an interview during Django Unchained where uh, Leo DiCaprio had a very difficult time with a scene. His first shooting scenes as Calvin Candy from that, from that particular film. If you're not familiar with Django Unchained, it is a racially charged film that's meant to be a criticism and a comedy and a farce and an examination of some of our American previous trends. I say our very loosely. I'm Russian. I live here. I grew up a lot here. I still don't feel like I'm a local, but here we are. So, Leo's having a hard time with how much he has to use the N-word and how vehemently and passionately he has to use it. And he's flanked by his other leads, uh, Jamie Foxx and Sam Jackson. And Jamie Foxx offers to Leo, saying, you know, it's, it's okay. This isn't you. Become the character. Be subsumed by the character. Do your lines. And then you're back to being yourself. It's fine. It's okay. There's not, this, this hate isn't coming from you. This is the role, which is very empathetic. And Sam Jackson's offering is some version of Motherfucker, get on with it. It's just Tuesday for us. Which is also <laughs> very sincere. It shouldn't be as funny as it is, though. Like, it's, it's, it's funny because, yeah, you have a point. <laughs> We're here on this set with the catering, the craft services, the lights, the grips, some of which are also people that you might be offending by saying the words you're saying. They know it's a movie. They might mutter themselves, but that's the idea. What's with the false modesty? It's really hard for me. Just say it. Just try it out. Just say it. Go ahead. You don't want to say it? Then why are you in this movie? That's a good point. Now, is that going to be clipped, memed, and canceled in the future? Possibly. But the notion is this is a highly controlled format, and it it's better to do this than to not do anything. It's better than saying, yeah, out of earshot, behind closed doors. That happens all the time, every Tuesday, forever. So what if we put this on a massively distributed platform to let other people see this idea, engage with it, and decide for themselves whether they're on board or not, and then the consequences thereof? That's better than never addressing it, and then problems. Such as, oh, uh, sex ed is just don't. 
Just don't do it. It's bad. It's sinful. Never do it. But how come there's a lot of people happening? Somebody's not paying attention, right? Oh, well, we don't talk about that. That's not okay. But this is not the kind of show to really gauge it. Uh, it is. We talk genocide all the time. Uh, <laughs> we do. Political, social, and gender issues are pervasive. Uh, of course, the modern discourse format is non-constructive. It's mostly about picking a camp and then dying in a hill and nothing new happens. And quietly in the background, people who are less interested in speaking up are developing new solutions to these problems. But what we can do is discuss and develop and flesh out this idea that we had. Somebody else brought this up too. It's difficult to have a non-glamorous Bond villain. And Chucks and I have discussed the possibility of introducing something that plays against tone and against type. Let's say the villains have had tasteful scars and interesting uh, dental appliances and various quirks. But what about a stuttering villain? Chucks? Oh, yeah. We, we, we do, I believe uh, we have named him Jerome. And we did say Jerome, but, but just op open this up a little bit. What's something that we brought up as an idea of why this is even significant? Why is a stuttering, non-glamorous villain significant for James Bond's setup? Well, think about it. And to me, a, a stuttering, non-glamorous one is just it to take something so serious as a Bond film and just have a guy as he turns the chair around like in all Bond films for some reason, because when they have to do a dramatic entrance, you have this guy just sitting there talking to Mr. Bond like, good afternoon, Mr. Bond, bow, and shoots his ass. So, like, don't cut me off, asshole. I may have a stutter, but you won't ever cut me off. It's significant in that aspect that it just, it takes away from the film and that it takes the real, well, Bond films are not realistic in any way, shape, or form. Um all the crazy shit that they pull off uh it just it takes the realism out of it and makes it more more hilarious to me and so it, it just it c turns it down a notch from what it was so that's why i when we were discussing it i found it hilarious and uh well, it's it significant it's a big tone shift in what we expect out of the dynamic and perhaps if if that's what we're doing with this thought exercise i would say you would have to have a scene that introduces the villain separate from our protagonist and some kind of stutter would happen. And then a henchman would have to fall into the trap. Maybe he's new. Maybe she's new. We don't know. Yeah, go ahead. Just kill a minority woman. That's perfect. But to, to show that the compact between villain and henchman is that the villain has a, a moderate to serious disability that only acts up in dramatic moments. Or it's a test. Maybe he's fucking with everybody. But the idea is everyone understands. Let the boss work through it. He's having a small seizure. His brain or his facial muscles can't just articulate what's being said. Let him work through it. So that when somebody goes in to correct and want to help out earnestly, out of, out of line, that person is killed. Now, shot is more elegant than hacked to death with a machete. But something happens and that engine is gone and the room doesn't react. They just quietly clean up the mess and continue. So we have this cartoonish, awful flaw that this, this bad guy has, right? We see that as the audience, we mark it, and we go, oh, wow, that's, mm, that's kind of messed up, actually. So that later on in the film, maybe about the middle mark, where Bond and the villain meet, somewhere in the back of your mind you have, they wouldn't. No, 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 it can't, right? And then James Bond, the cartoon character that we know, of this dashing, yet brooding, yet sexy, yet 
resourcefully brutal agent, whether with a smirk on his face or trying to be empathetic or to save time, autocompletes for the villain. And the villain flies off the chain and kills Bond. What, are, what, what movie is this? This is Blazing Saddles. Where's Ashton? What's happening? I like that as a notion, at least as a maneuver. Of course, that burdens us with the responsibility of writing the rest of the movie. Like, how is this going to go down? Because this is not the end of the film. This is the middle. And if we're following the rule of threes, what's going to happen to the bad guy at the end? Is there going to be a third critical stutter? And what will happen? Now, it's really hard to sell franchises on this. But then again, Chucks, we did have multiple Bonds. And there's rumblings that the newest Bond, whenever it gets released and freed from its production hell, is going to transfer the mantle to the First Lady Bond or something. Which, I'm okay with that, actually. Because Bond has always been a placeholder, not a character. There's a reason they call them double-O agents, and there's a reason they have a high rotation rate, because they pick the best of the best to go die for the crown, whenever possible. In fact, every time a Bond comes back, the tax statements are just devastating. Remember that one time that Bond was captured and held in the Korean prison for years? Or at least one year, let's say months. And there was um, there was, there was scorpion venom torture and bad handling and a very sexually repressed, kinky lady uh, stenographer that was just watching him the whole time. And then, to everyone's disappointment, there has to be a hostage exchange where a global criminal is returned back to the wild in exchange for Bond as a brokerage chip. And when Bond gets home, this is the Pierce Brosnan era, nobody's happy to see him. They go, why don't you just fucking die in that basement? We don't want you back. This is too costly. How does that strike you, Jux? How does that scenario strike me? Well, that scenario happened, but the tone, if you're a kid or a normal adult watching Bond films, you just think, okay, guns, babes, explosions, whatever. A moonraker, right? Nobody cares about the global politics of this. Just starts their action guy. But if you think of the Bond agents are as, as high utility but ultimately expendable field assets using spycraft. I mean, isn't it by nature a detachable arm? Yeah, it is. I mean, so with me, I'm, I'm not the biggest Bond fan. Uh, I do know... Or oh, oh, maybe if they made the movie the way we talk about it, you would be a Bond fan, because you'd say, oh shit, there's stakes, but please continue. No, so uh, I haven't watched a lot of Bond films, so... Uh, haven't watched any of the older ones from the 60s and 70s and 80s. I watched the GoldenEye when I was growing up because of the video game. Um, I watched one, the first one, Daniel Radcliffe. Not Daniel Radcliffe. Oh, that's going to be a completely different oh. Bond. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, he could do it, too. James Bond and the... What is it? No, Harry Potter and the 007 agents. Well... Okay, okay, let's let's take this tangent here. The reason Harry Potter is even admitted into Hogwarts is that he's a plant that the British <laughs> intelligence has put in there. He is a muggle, he is a royal crown agent. He goes through all of his adventures just to get close to Dumbledore and kill him. Because Dumbledore is a villain. <laughs> so he's been a double O this whole time. So when they say you're a wizard, Harry, he goes, oh good, the, 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 the cover is working. Because he, he, he always has these friends and ways to get out of danger, and Harry's always in mortal peril, but 
really it's to destabilize Voldemort because we need to do, have you do a sting over here so we can do the other shit. That's not the movies, I get it, but I really dig the idea that Harry Potter is actually a 37-year-old man who, due to his genetic permutation, is able to, or maybe it's a glamour, who knows, but like, oh yes, I'm just a young boy wizard, oh! But, yeah, secretly, he's a double O. On his or, spare time, he's just sitting in the room, he's seen the shit that I've seen, this is nothing. Just going or, if, go if you go through the books, like you, you say, it, it's funnier or more wacky for us if all of his teenage adventures are all in secretly informed this way. Or the, the easier, the more pandering is once he graduates wizard high school, what then? Well, R Majesty's Secret Service is hiring. So yes, he can be a, a, a wizard infiltrator in the muggle world. I mean, you could argue that 007 powers are pretty much magical. Just... I want you to picture Sean Connery going, Expecto Patronov. <laughs> Crucio. Avada Kadava. What the hell? Avada Kadava. Avada Yes, this is this is Hedwig, my personal messenger. Hedwig Pussigalor. Pussigalor Hedwig. Pussigalor. Yes. Yes. I like this idea. I like this cross pollination. It doesn't make any sense, but the idea that the young child has gone through so much shit and is heir to whatever legacy they have. He goes, yeah, you know what? I have no future that doesn't result in tragedy, so why not be a super spy? The world doesn't know who I am. I mean, eventually they do, but I, again, the interesting part of the writing happens at a children's level slash a high schooler's level. A lot of writing is pitched this way because kids don't pay attention in class, and instead of learning how to read, they think about fucky fucky the entire time. Not that I blame them. And so we have these highly sophisticated lunchroom level stories that when the kids graduate, uh, who cares what kind of adults they are? Uh, they knock somebody up and they get a mortgage. There you go. There's, there's, the, there's your happily ever after. Why not say, yeah, by the time I'm 22, I've lived three lifetimes and my mind can barely grapple with that. So I can either try and have a modest life and fight it the entire time and be miserable, or I can live fast and hard as a prestigious super spy agent. At the very least, sex is guaranteed. I mean, it's my hand most of the time, but you know, it works. You gotta defeat that e e evil demon, Pubertus. Gabbage, you know what must be done. <laughs> I can I can only imagine Daniel Radcliffe just flying around instead of holding like the little uh, pistol that he normally carries and just has the wand and just going around like killing all these guys and they're just like, what the fuck is going on? Like they're just so, dropping like flies. What I want you to do is pull up Daniel Radcliffe's face. Okay. Yep. His, his modern face, not his kid face, his his modern self. And then I want you to look at Timothy Dalton. Timothy Dalton. Didn't he just pass? Uh not yet. Not yet. But it's not a huge stretch. I mean, de-age him by 30 years. You could see a Radcliffe maybe Dalton eyed a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially during his Bond years. Is Dalton now Dalton? What's there? Who was the one American who played James Bond? Is that right. Moore? <laughs> oh, wow. Just flew out of my head. Was it Roger Moore? Uh, is Roger Moore American? I guess he is. I think he is. Roger. American. 
James Bond. Nope. We're just staring at the internet now. That's not good. Actors play the spot, but yes. Barry uh, Nelson. Uh, there you go. That's, that, that's the important bit there. Going back to Jerome. Okay, going we back to We have positioned the possibility of a double O dying in a movie and then having to somehow work through the plot by the end. Maybe more of a series than a film, but let's suppose. We also wanted to de-glamorize this character and make them a credible threat because we mentioned the idea of, oh, somebody emerged from the American Midwest that fought against whatever limitations they had and have elevated themselves to a point of criminal influence that could really affect national, if not international, values. But it's really difficult to get behind the notion of somebody who's a credible threat because they got all the corn huskers to agree that they could be operating differently they could hold crop supply hostage they could find a way to run whatever criminal organization tacitly for a long enough time to establish the capital they need to make a big move now that they make a big move the first response is oh i'm not gonna take it seriously and then eco-terrorism happens they say oh fuck this is actually a problem so we wanted to establish what kind of person jerome could plausibly be as an american non-glamorous uh clearly traumatized antagonist. Did you have any additional thoughts, Mr. Jux? Uh, I did not. I was... Uh... God damn it. The discussion requires both participants to contribute. Sorry, I was looking up American James Bond still. No, George Lizenby is the only one that so far that isn't from either United Kingdom, well, part of the former Great Britain Empire. Uh, he's from Australia. But uh, I would uh, get a great giggle out of a man who is... Well, one, they're sending sending a a British spy to the American soil to stop a guy who stutters because he's controlling the farming industry. Uh, I do not know how much the farming industry affects the uh, United Kingdom, but I know it would weaken the dollar, so they they'd probably be involved somehow. That's part of the part of the gist as well. You think on the surface, like even characters in the movie could say, "Why are you, this is in my department? Why are you here? Why do you want our help with your problems?" And then you can get whatever information officer analyst to lay it all out in whatever character tropes you want to use so that the room gradually gets, like, the air grows thicker as people realize, no, those dots do connect, and it's really bad if they do. So let's fix this right now, or I'll see you in eight months when it gets worse. So they say, what do we do? How can we do this? We need to send someone to infiltrate their ranks. Well, we can't send an American to do it because that's going to be a little too close. We need someone who stands out just enough to draw the right kind of attention. Send the double O. But which one? There are so many to choose from. Nine, even. Yeah, we got to send Lizenby. That that Bond. Oh, look, he looks American enough. And they say, the Bond might say, what's this to me? Why do you want to send me? And they say, corn liquor. He goes, I'm in. <laughs> I want to get them fresh squeezins. I've always wanted to taste American bourbon. Oh, yeah. Or whatever, right? Yeah, whatever crazy American alcoholic beverage. You know what I wanted to try? Bud Light. That would be a twist. Like, wait a minute. Would... What? It does have a, a, a twist of lime. Never mind. Uh, yes. And perhaps one of the reasons subconsciously that it's okay for a double O to perish before the picture is over is that 
having tasted some degrees, not just the globe-trotting bullshit that normally happens that people really enjoy for escapism, which, I mean, it has its place. I totally get it. But something about the spirit of the land speaks to the guy, because he's never spent time in open fields. Like, first, it's, it's oppressive. It's like Al Pacino and Insomnia, which you probably have never seen, Chucks. I have not. Pretty good movie, actually. Him and uh, Robin Williams. Good performance. But it's this... You remember Heat? The seminal classic? Yeah, I do. Kyle Cameron, he, Kilmer, Danny Trejo, Al Pacino. He never finished it, I don't think. But no, we started did. watching it. Fucking finish it. Anyway. <laughs> I got a lot of shit I gotta finish. Uh, Al Pacino's character from that movie is a stressed out detective. Like, if you make detective, you're already a damaged human being. There's just, there's no way back. You're just managing from this point. But this guy is in LA, has been most of his life, and just life is difficult. And he pointed him at the big criminals because he can do it, but he's just hanging on by a thread, right? So that character could easily be transplanted into insomnia, where this guy gets sent due to a linked case to Alaska, and everyone's staring at each other saying, Why the fuck are we sending our California guy to Alaska? They say, well, because there is a connection, and you're the guy tied to the case. Also, Internal Affairs is very interested in you, so we want to send you away to try and dodge some of those uncomfortable departmental questions you're going to have to answer. So, all the plot aside, a major theme throughout is that this person, this character, is ultra-displaced by their environment, by the season, and the landscape, as beautiful as it is, of you know, fjords and inlets and endless black spruce trees and a persistent pervasive summer fog and a mist that clouds everything the environment is poison to him just nothing his brain works worse by having to be exposed by to be immersed in whatever he is it, it it's nothing like la so similar to that i would argue taking a double o from the great Scottish Plains, or wherever the fuck in the Great Empire, unless they are from Australia, which defeats the purpose. But the idea is, they get placed somewhere in a long-term operation, a sting, where at first, the endless Kansas fields and hills, or wherever the flatter parts are that we want to set this in. Arkansas, why not? Not Tennessee. There's There's a jungle in there. But the idea is, it's so alien and foreign that at first there's a rejection and dismissal, but then little by little, the longer they're there, something starts to shift within them, where they go, yeah, the endless planes are calling. And so now, on a subconscious level, their commitment to everything they stood for by dogma, by practice, serving the crown, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, begins to sort of erode, and that's what lets them slip. Maybe. But that's, again, that's kind of a different movie, but let's pretend this still connects to Jerome. Uh, who, who seduces Bond? Come over to them. Go, you know what? Yeah, fuck it. I want to run a liquor empire with you. <laughs> and also, it's set in the 1920s, so there you go. It's the first Bond. It's the first iteration of Bond and how he got created. Mm-mm. No, the first Bond was right there with the uh, the Hell Mammoth riding uh, Ghost Rider uh, in, in the Ultra BCs. Gotcha. Before the crown was even a thing, there were Bonds. <laughs> the, the reality stone made it so. Indeed. All right. Well, that's, that's good fuckery for now. Um, I will... Keep us on movies just for a bit, because, Chucks, I did get to see something I wanted to see, and I have some thoughts. What is it? Uh, my wife treated me to a viewing of Pig. I actually want to know how that is. I'm able to see it on a, a streaming service. It's fantastic. It's 95 minutes, I think. It is a very quiet movie, and that's a good thing. It tackles empathy 
in a way that very few movies that I've seen do without being schmaltzy. It was captivating in terms of performance and uh, framing. And a thing I'm going to say, you will not be able to unsee, this movie has an obsession with doors. And that's not a bad thing. Because symbolically, it comes across very, very, very well for me. And I think the biggest memeable thing from that film is a scene somewhere in the middle that we'll just call the restaurant scene. And there's, there's so much unsaid verbally. The words are used very economically. And the verbose character is sort of played off as a, a, a mess, a joke of a person that gets a little bit of time and growth throughout the movie. I love it. It should be boring. It should be messy. It should be something that is a art house throwaway, but it isn't. And then Nick Cage is there. And my wife had to do the, uh, okay, fine. He's not a terrible actor. Which she then spins it to, well, 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 he doesn't, he's not acting, right? He's just himself. He's just Nick Cage on film. He walks into a room, cameras point to him, look, it's Nick Cage. But that's just a defense mechanism, like James Bond facing the endless plains of rural. It's, you know, there's something here, but for the sake of your sanity, you have to shit on it first. And the restraint parallel to the indulgence this film does is very impressive to me because it holds pace and tension in a very consistent fashion. And you might ask yourself at first, where is this going? And that's okay. We will get somewhere. But something that's been said and I agree with, because of our recent meta-audience expectations, we constantly feel that this is about to John Wick. And spoiler, it never John Wicks. Never. It's more clever than that. It's more patient than that. And that's beautiful. I would like to speak to you about it more specifically. But the three pillars I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with is one, empathy, two, doors, three, patience. Okay. Doors, patience, and empathy. Yes. So is that the only new film you've seen recently, sir? We also rewatched uh, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. New Orleans. He's in which that, is isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he is. Also Val Kummer. <laughs> as we mentioned previously, but not on recording. Uh, Harvey Keitel was the original. I still haven't watched that, but it's available on Amazon. I happen to have a copy of the, not remake, let's call it a spiritual follow-up. And this is, again, taken from the subset of films where no Nick Cage can act, actually, despite your protests. And it was a good, uncomfortable watch. Especially because it's a physical part of the performance where Nick Cage's character early in the film sustains a spinal injury. Not so bad he can't walk, but bad enough he noticed, and there's a big pain management element in the film. And uh, I didn't pay attention before, it's fairly obvious, but there's a visual element where the suit fits him badly, because the role of what he's doing fits him badly, metaphorically. But he's got this staggering limp walk with one shoulder constantly raised to try and ease the pressure off of the damaged nerve. and the way he stands and sits and walks around is pretty consistent, which just one of those extra tiny bits that helps sell me on the idea that this dude's not okay, but is pushing forward anyway. 
the trippy element of the movie was perhaps less apparent to me before. I don't know how. I just that that wasn't the part I was focusing on. But it has some fear and loathing of Las Vegas vibes as well. Because the man is frequently under narcotic influence. And for example, there's a scene where there's a stakeout. He's still very much a detective. Oh, all these fucking cop movies, man. What's wrong with you? Uh, he's a detective and there's a stakeout. He's upset that there are iguanas on the table. At which point his closest thing to a partner says, there are no iguanas on the table. They're right fucking there! So you as the audience get to decide how real they are. And there's a few more elements that plays into as well. It's, it's, it's good. It's, it's really solid. It's, it's a depressing watch for most of it. Clever. And it's maybe a progenitor of uncut gems with Sandler that would happen, oh, 14 years later. Maybe a little less. But I appreciate Bad Lieutenant Protocol and Yawns. Never That's all it. I got to say. Ever Never... seen it? Soft recommendation. Pig first. Pig, of course, first. What about Willy's but... Wonderland, sir? I've heard that both Mandy and Willy's Wonderland are worth watching. I haven't seen them yet. As well as the Stephen King adaptation that he's in. That's kind of the problem with the amount of volume that Nick Cage puts out is it's a little difficult to see which which order you should watch it in and what mood you should watch it for. Because there's stuff that is utter trash that he's in that's worth watching. Because it knows it's trash and it's here to show you something. And there's other stuff that doesn't know it's trash, but he just sort of blunderfucks through it and he's one of the better parts of it. For example, uh, Jiu-Jitsu, which I think we've talked about briefly. Do you remember Jiu-Jitsu at all? I remember the previews for it. It looked dumb, so I didn't watch it. Well, it's it's actually better than dumb, Chucks. Ah. If I say the words, it is Predator by way of Mortal Kombat, what do you imagine? Uh, them getting transported to another world or planet to fight off these monsters? Not really, but a little. Huh. I mean, like like I say... It's trash, but it's a good kind of trash. As long as you have that filter and forgive the parts where, oh, okay, we're doing one of these. Like, the cage is there for maybe 15% of the film, and he's not necessary, but they said we need a, a kooky old Wiseman that's not quite with it anymore. They cast the guy, and he breezes through his part, and then a part of you goes, I'm watching this movie, and I really miss the Power Rangers. Another part goes... Oh, this is... Oh, man. Really? This is... Okay, fine. You know what? Yeah. No, roll with it. Let's see what happens next. <laughs> it's one of those things that you can sit down and watch it intently and suffer a little, or you can watch it with a little bit of hardness. Maybe the phone's out. Maybe this is in your second monitor. There is some value to be had by experiencing this movie, but I, once again, will qualify it as trash. Sometimes you're in the mood for trash, though, so here you go. And there's other stuff, like I said, like with Willy's Wonderland and with Mandy, it's we want to see Nick Cage, Nick Cage out. We want to see how his face contorts and stretches and yell. And sometimes he's down for that. He's in the mood to do exactly that. Uh, shit, I forget the name now. I'm not going to look for it, but the idea was that there's a movie where Nick Cage is a trucker. His main character arc is that he's a trucker, and he's had a bad past, and he's trying to escape it. But now he's been seduced by a girl. And now he's going to be in a relationship with that girl. And then possibly her mom-daughter. Uh, it gets messy. 
and it's very difficult to parse because we're dealing with frail human behaviors and we don't know who the good or bad guy is and how much mysticism there's really happening. I enjoyed it because it's a bizarre-ass movie and it's mostly understated until it gets really nutty. And I, I dig that. I like that a lot. Other times, you want something more explicit. So, Nick Cage is his own genre, arguably. And it depends what you show up for. I did try to get her to watch, um, my wife, Con Air. Uh, but unfortunately, the mullet scared her off. So that's that's a future conquest. I actually had to gamble away date night to say, we're watching a Nick Cage movie, and that in reward of doing that, you get a free evening. Instead of, I'm still going to cook for you, but we're not going to do a regular movie night. You can do something else. And that was that was the thing that let her say, okay, fine, I'll be vulnerable to this. But I don't know how much problems you have with this, Chucks. My wife judges new movies by the cover of the box art. Uh, I don't. I do that with books sometimes, but when most of the books I like reading are super old, uh, there's not a whole lot. Comic books will get me that way because comic books are a visual art to me more than about the reading because then the panels will tell you stuff. Movies, on the other hand, they may look silly, uh, but most of the time when you see those, it's like watching a trailer. A trailer doesn't give you everything. I know I just ripped on jujitsu because of the trailer, uh, but yeah. I, uh, I don't try to do it that way. I try to be like, okay, what is this about? Well, you recognize the medium. Yeah. Is there a medium that you're kind of curious about? Well, actually let's take, let's take games as an example. You say, yeah, I like video games. And I say, what about this? You say, I have no interest or this looks dumb. I don't want it. Unless you're convinced with an extra step, the, the presenter has to go, okay, I think I know what you respond to. Let me present it in this fashion. And then you might say, oh, cool, I'm into this now. So the verge has to be conquered. Um, but if you just look at a trailer or some screenshots or the Steam reviews, you might form a strong impression that it does not adequately represent what you're in for, right? Correct. So the compromise that I've reached more or less with her is to say, okay, Instead of just looking at the box art covers, I'm going to pull these movies up on Amazon. And I'm going to read the two-sentence or two-line description on the Amazon banner. Not watching a trailer, we're just going to read the copy. Because a lot of these Blu-rays, they're 10 years old. Or they're reminted and rebranded, which means the slip covers have changed, the cover art has changed, the copy that's written for the boxes has also been shifted. So we're dealing with re-re-re-re-representation. Right, mm -hmm. but the result is very positive because I punched up uh, "Raising Arizona," and the Amazon text blurb is incomplete and it cuts off at her best place. And I, I believe it read, uh, "A family helps themselves to a set of quintuplets, comma," and that's all it said. I said, "That's enough. That's enough of a premise. A couple helps themselves to a set of quintuplets. Fucking, let's watch that." The mystery is in the watching. That's good. That gets you excited. I have a, not a bootleg, but it's it's a copy of Drive Angry, and it has no slipcover on it. So, of course, it's this looks dumb. Because even the banner on Amazon is an interior car shot with Amber Heard looking wistful, wispy with her hair everywhere, Nick Cage looking really intense to the, uh, the driver's front windshield. That static image looks generic. Okay. You start reading. An escapee from hell. Okay, now there's something. Now there's something happening here. I would like to watch this movie. So the compromise is the initial image gives you a expectation. 
But then peripheral to that image, uh, just a few words can really sprinkle in an impression that will har uh, harm or help your desire to see a film. And I found that to be a lovely compromise because I know what we're in for, but then she doesn't. And sometimes it's nice to be surprised even my own because if you try to watch something and say, oh, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen here, and you do a little bit of reading, you might also form an impression. For example, uh, based on reviews and what I read, I thought The Old Guard on Netflix was going to be a good movie. And that I got very disappointed that it had a solid premise, pulpy, that went nowhere. So That's I... That's the Charlize I, Theron I, movie, I, isn't it? That's the Charlize Theron movie, absolutely. I have nothing against her as an actress, just the way it's pitched and presented initially is not what the movie is. I, uh, and that was, I lost the game at that point. I, I'm going to bring back up the story I mentioned previously at the thing, because right after we got done watching Blazing Saddles, we were talking about how Charlize Theron was the first African woman to win a an uh, <clears throat> Academy Award, I believe. African? She ain't even black. Exactly. That's the guy's like, wait, she's African? I'm like, she's from South Africa. And the first, there were, I also I brought up there was a guy who was uh, from somewhere in the, like, Eastern Africa. He's white, and he was the first African to win, like, a major golf tournament. I can't remember his name. Uh, they were just like, what the hell? I was like, yeah, surprisingly, there's there's still white people over there. Now, back to the non-racial thing. Uh, I do not in any way, shape, or form. Even when I, So when I watch a movie, I, I'll look at it and be like, does this entertain me? This Will this maybe entertain me? And I go, maybe. And then I just, I I, uh, I hope and pray it does. And if it sucks, uh, I'll turn it off. So there there's very few, though. I, I'm one of those who sticks to the, that, hey, I just like, the movies I like are shows that I like, and it's hard to make me find another one. Uh, a, a recent show that I actually started watching when I was uh, when we were roommates, uh, Sex Education. Uh, surprisingly, not a bad show. I thought it was going to be dumb. It's going to be some campy little uh, comedy, and it has its moments. But I'm like, no, this isn't a half bad show. And I'll, I'll, I'll if you want to watch it, the third season comes out tomorrow, Friday. Um, Wait, which season? Third season. Okay. It's still got legs then. Yeah, it still has legs. And it, it's not a bad premise. It's about a, a young man, uh, Asa Butterfield. Asa Butterfield uh, play, his mom's a sex therapist, and he takes the stuff that he learned from her and is now giving it to his classmates and giving them sex advice and relationship advice. It seems like a silly concept. Plays out pretty well. So I, I'm not going to give everything away. Uh, I would recommend you watch it and tell me what you think. It doesn't have to be silly. What's it on? Netflix. It is a BBC show, but it's on Netflix here in America. Interesting. Cool licensing. Yeah. But you said it's also it, it it's privy to and possibly a slave to the school format, right? Uh slightly, yes. It, it's about teenagers. Sure. But <laughs> it's 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 in the wake of the Yakuza franchise and of course Disco, it's curious to me how little writing people really take to slash even put out into the world that doesn't have to deal with young formative impressions and experiences because yeah the world is new to younger people and many choose to stop developing at an age that is highly impressionable and they think they got the world figured out i'm pretty sure you and i at some point also individually felt like we've got this kind of figured out and then life kept happening so at some point you may have a moment of reflection where you think I have no fucking idea. I, I don't. I, I want to keep living and seeing what happens, but I'm increasingly at the least amount of confidence of what I really know about anything. Do you ever have that? Yeah, that hit me about when I was 21. 
<laughs> okay, good. So you got yours pretty early on. Yeah, yeah. It, it took was, me yeah. about six more years after you to uh, go. Wait, what the fuck though? Mine was because I had kid. I had a kid. I'm just like, oh fuck, this oof, this is not how I thought. <laughs> yeah, that will ki kids, from what I understand, are a game changer. Yeah, uh, it's increasingly curious if in the circles that we travel, where people just whip out their phone and say, yeah, my chillins, my chillins. And I think to myself, well, these people are with us and they're participating in some of the events that we enjoy, but their lives are structured completely differently from ours and. If, if children happen from my wife and I, that will also happen to us. We might say sweet things like, oh, yeah, it'll be so great to have kids. We don't know. We're not there. I think you survive children to a certain point, and depending on how helpful and collaborative both, I won't just say both, any of the involved partners are. It could be the parents suck at being parents and the grandma does all the work. That also happens. But then that's also kind of maybe better because the person's been around for longer and might know more about life than the parents themselves directly. It's a complicated subject. And yet, it's complicated, but we're overthinking it because dumb shit fuck people have kids all the time, and the kids turn out okay-ish. Some of them are even fantastic. Sometimes terrible households produce very important people, and that's also weird to think about. But I don't want to be a bad parent on purpose to roll those dice, you know what I mean? No, I 100%. You don't ever want to be a bad parent. Your goal in life is not to be like, well, I'm going to be... A mediocre bad parent you always once you have well some people that may be it some people just say fuck it i don't care uh, hey but, you know shitty parents create fantastic politicians they do because the person with this sort of ambition to say i'm not satisfied with the way the world is and i'm going to change it well i mean if you're satisfied what ambition is there yep me and my pops we got this here uh hazelnut farm it's been in our generation been a family for four generations and that's kind of where i want to be i just want to be a hazelnut farmer that's all. That's the extent of my ambitions, but I'm very good at it. And somebody else might say, well, don't you want to be a hip-hop legend? No. I like my hazelnuts. And <laughs> so long as they're showing a degree of self-contentment, but also effort and curiosity and passion, leave it alone. That person has found their joy. Let it be. This is a rare and beautiful thing. On the other hand, you have the super ultra-driven asshole that just is dissatisfied with the world as it stands and as it was, and needs to change it. And maybe they get as far as being a really solid day shift manager at a mining key. But they also might become a uh, senator. And then, who knows? But the drive is there to escape the hand you're dealt versus being pretty satisfied with it. The bad one is when you, you <laughs> by objective metrics, you're a good parent, but the kid still hates you and does everything possible to put uh, caltrops on their own path in life. And then when they step on the couch upstairs, I'm back to you saying, why would, why, why would you do this to me? And then you have to like not swing at the kid and try and explain it rationally. Right. Yeah, you do. You, when, when they, when you or them screw like mess up and put something in their way in the path it, and you're like, well, you, with most kids, you just want to explain like, Hey, this is why this is wrong. And, and try to explain to them, and then if they learn, they learn. If they don't, they don't. And then they'll keep doing it until they finally learn on their own. Do you think any person... Now we're getting philosophical here. Thanks, Maria Shriver. Do you think any person has come to the end of their life, and then the scorecard was there, and then they scored a perfect test? Okay, 100 points out of 100. Good job, you did it. No. Perfect life. No. I want to. I want to contest that. That does happen for a very special class of people. 
Who? Who is, who is that, Robbie? Yeah, Suicide Bombers. Suicide Bombers are batting 100. I would like to know how. How? Simple. Uh, you don't typically get to be one if you come from a place of contentment, peace, and harmony. Typically, if you are a suicide bomber, most of the time, uh, life is hard and you're looking for uh, reconciliation. So if you are indoctrinated into a belief and a structure with a direction where you are told that the exchange of all that you could be for the sake of pursuance of a purpose, serving a purpose, and submitting yourself before a set of ideals, if you embrace that, then you achieve a certain degree of purity. You might have doubts. That's not natural for human beings. But you're still saying, I can see the objective. Now I've got the tools. And all I have to do is follow the steps. And then I get there. And then about the only way you can fuck it up is you get the words out wrong. Or you like fumble with a trigger and blow up early in the van. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh at that. But that's fucking funny to me. And if you achieve your objective and you go where you need to go. And you say the right words. And you pull the trigger. And then you and whatever's around you explodes. Well, you did it. You you honed your life to a perfect purpose, and then you executed it. The they'll be picking up pieces of you from wherever, but that person did it. They died precisely as they believed they were meant to. How are you going to argue? Get to the end, and the scorecard says, "Yeah, but you know, you you could have owned two cats." I don't know. It's a very it's a very pure human thing to do. It's terrible, but there's a purity to it. Well, yeah, it's a very yeah. terrible thing to do. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could see it that way. I would say even those guys, like, there probably could have been, like, the two cats thing, probably not. Uh, there probably could have been more. They could have, you know, something else could have been done. Like, well, you know, if you would have stayed around, you may have, you know, been the next leader of whatever suicide group that you're in. You could have, should have, would have. Those are all potential things. And most of our regrets in life is the potentials that didn't resolve and what we envisioned them to be. Whether that's because you missed the deadline, or you chose you zigged instead of zagging, or you tried really hard and still came out wrong, like your kids. I'm kidding, not specifically your kids. Just this is broadly right. The regrets and the questions about what it could have, shoulda, are what detract from your peace as a human being. But when you're completely convinced about a course of action, and then you take the course of action, and the end result is it happened exactly as you wanted it to, as far as you envisioned it. I mean, yeah, you're, you're, you're cutting limbs off of a tree, but that trunk is looking real good by the end, you know? Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I get your point. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying. As a sui- concept. Suicide <laughs> bombers, though, I don't know if they would be like, congratulations, you've made it to the end of the world or the uh, to whatever. You, the end of your on. path. Yeah. Yeah, your and, path uh, stopped here. You know, unfortunately, uh, because you uh, blew yourself up with C4 or something, you know, Whatever. There, there's still flaws in everything. Like you the probably... explosives you used were not ethically sourced. Ergo, that's this is a moral crime. <laughs> exactly. Like, oh, sorry, you, uh, you should have been vegan instead. I'm sorry. Like, what the fuck? I could have gone with the end of Highlander Two, where Sean Connery's character returns and then sacrifices his immortality to create a miracle moment. I could have gone with that, but that's a super obscure reference. So, bomb vest is the direction that I went to. I gotcha. And I'm not endorsing this, kids. Don't. Just fucking don't. But if you're gonna, there may be some moral high ground you might stand on. Some part of you will reach the stratosphere, I promise. One day. Well, yeah. The the, the day when you do the thing. 
at that point. Oh my god, this is awful. Cancel them. These are all hypotheticals, folks. But I'm not necessarily sure that parenthood is the path that leads towards that. Maybe the absence of parenthood. I'd say the absence of parenthood would lead towards suicide bombers. From the direct family, because these st children still seek uh, parental figures, and they find them wherever they want to. Danny Madigan found it in uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's character on screen. And uh, Asa Butterfield's character found it inside of another woman. So that seems, unless, of course, it's possible that he's, I don't know, is Sex Ed a queer positive show? His best Here's friend's gay. But he has a phobia of touching his own penis, so that's kind of his dilemma. Mm. No, I can relate. Yeah, for years it was a problem for me. I, I didn't want to touch it, but I made others touch it. Did it. There's some legal issues with that. I don't know. It, it scares me. It, so his whole thing was that his mom is a relationship and sex therapist who sleeps with a lot of guys. His mom is Jillian Anderson. Uh, if no one knows who Jillian Anderson is, uh, she plays Scully in the X-Files. Uh, also, uh, Robert Patrick is in the X-Files in the last season. Just for a fun fact. Um, he replaced uh, about said David Coverfield, but that is not who I'm looking for. Uh, what the hell is his name? Duchovny. David Duchovny. Thank you. Yeah. But he, she plays his mom, and she's essentially having issues because her his dad left her uh, for some younger woman. So she's filling that gap in, and no one will address their issues, but he's addressing hey, Filling that gap in. All right. Symbolic. So he's helping other people with their relationship issues while at the same time not taking care of his. It's, it's a good premise. It is. Definitely. How many episodes per season? I think 10 as of right now. Okay. I watched and... the first season when I was living up there. I watched the second season when I moved back down, and they haven't, they didn't do a third season up until now. And in this time, you were able to finally reconcile your uh, conflicts with your penis. I was. Uh, I listened to his advice on the show. You know, perfect. This therapeutic, then definitely, one hundred percent. Well, let me take a look, as I always do, at some people involved. For example, the writers. And since we're dealing with TV shows, it is incredible sometimes the carousel that occurs between creators. Because sometimes somebody's responsible for the show, but the show is based on a written work or established property, and then you bring in more people to hanker with it, fuck with it, being vernacularly accurate. But I can't find. I have the creator, Laurie Nunn. Let me take a look just in case to see as a writer. Yeah, started and gone to Earth. She did three shorts, and apparently she wrote all of the uh, episodes. Okay, okay. That's good. That means the tone is consistent. Would you say that the show's tone is consistent so far? Oh, yeah. The tone The tone for the show has been consistent steadily all the way through. Uh, so eight episodes season one, seven episodes season two. Okay. I have confidence now that the narrative here, at the very least, is going to be cohesive. Yeah, no, it, it's no, no, I would anybody who's going into this, uh, your expectations of what like. So the first scene, uh, one of the characters is banging her boyfriend. So that's how it opens. Um, but his issue oh, is she opens. <laughs> yeah. So his issue, though, is that he can't get off. 
because there's some other underlying issues. And so that's his first client because what happens is is that he partnered up with Ace's Butterfield character. They go to his house and he finds all of his mom's sex stuff. Uh, and so he posts a video about it. And then he took two Viagra. So he has Asa Butterfield and uh, Emma, Mac Emma Mackey, who plays Maeve, uh, have to help him figure out a way. And then Asa Butterfield just starts talking to him about it. And he's like, you just got to own your prerogative, man. Uh, you got this huge elephant dick and uh, your dad's the master, headmaster. Just, you know, just whatever. Who gives a shit? And it helps him, and that's where Emma Mackey's character comes in and says, hey, you know, you, you're you pretty good at this. We should start a business by helping people. But he Asa Butterfield fucks it up. Authority. Say what? Oh, okay. Having supreme authority as teenagers, they know what they're talking about. Exactly. Like, it's happening to me. I'm a subject matter expert. Yeah, but he fucks it up anyways. Because the first one he starts talking about, uh, what is it, chinchillas giving self-fellatio, and the girl's like, what in the ever-loving fucker? And she just leaves. So Wait, it, are you saying that Asa Butterfield's character is written to be on the spectrum? He may be. He he he's. I guess you'd say he's nervous because he's nervous. He's trying to help people relate and give other ideas, but instead of it, instead of it, he fucks it up, and that's the whole thing. Oh, he's not nervous. He's backed up. Maybe. But okay, that's that's curious to me. So let me ask you the following: You've seen two seasons so far, and you started watching season three. Is that my understanding? No, it starts tomorrow, the seventeenth of September. Okay, and you're going to be on top of that shit. Yeah, I'll be watching uh, it while I work. So, <laughs> that's a scary thought. Uh, <laughs> one hand on the radio, guess where the other one is. Uh, what I want to ask is this. Uh, people, audiences, in general, that even deign to partake in serial media, a lot of them have fairly low expectations, much of the time. And their IQs tend to be somewhat commensurate, speaking rudely. But the notion here is that we are catching an audience, audience's attention with keyword sex. Because we, we have genitals and we have complicated relationships with those genitals. And we can relate to that at the very least. Um, and then, of course, you said it within a certain time period. Based on this, it looks like it's not modern day. It's a little antiquated. Is that accurate? It, no, it is. It is modern day. It's supposed to be current. Gotcha. Current okay. times. Yeah. So it's relatable based on I, I recognize how these people look mm -hmm. and they're teens, which is a very important time for psychological maturation. Your brain's still mush, but your gonads are you're, they're they're pulsing with the dire need to be expressed. And so you catch based on ooh, fucky fucky. I recognize fucky fucky. I like it. But that's how they entice you to start watching. And they create a complicated set of relationship interactions where there's not depth established yet, but there's nuance based on, oh, and then so-and-so to so-and-so, and then this happened, gotcha. But now you're 15 episodes deep up until tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I'm going to wager that it kept your attention because that's the tone, but the creator has more to say. And they say that in the margins between discussing genitals. Is that accurate? No. So I got peeked into the show because I'm just sitting there it's like the number one show on Netflix. It was for like a day or two or some shit when it came out. And I was like, man, this show is probably going to be dumb. I don't know what it's about. It's a British show. And I, I like British humor, by the way. I'm a big fan. I, one of my favorite shows is called Mock of the Week, and that's hilarious. Um, 
but what what drove me to it to keep watching was that it piqued me the interest on what would happen not the sex but what's going to come of this whole situation <laughs> of Asa Butterfield and Emma Mackey's characters in creating this sex therapy thing at school and season 2 keeps going with that like they they finally find out that someone is running a sex education thing well not sex education uh but giving sex advice and it's causing issues at the school and they want it to stop so uh, the principal brings in Asa Butterfield's mom, uh, Jillian Anderson, to become like a sex education teacher, and it. it I. It, but they keep doing it. Then they on the uh, desk. No, no. Uh, Emma Mackey and Asa Butterfield's character start oh, having a thing. Like Asa has a. Uh, Asa, what, say what? What's gonna What's gonna come? He said something's gonna come. What's gonna become of her becoming the teacher? Is he gonna get shit now because his mom's now the teacher at the uh, a teacher at the school teaching sex? Um. A lot of the words you can be misconstrued as sexual as well. Just they, they can I'm be. Gonna, I'm gonna complain that. I know. Got a lot of shit's gonna come out of this. Oh wow, we're doing scat stuff. This is interesting. Indeed, they are. On national television. Wow. But the whole thing is that it drove, and you want to see what happens between Asa Butterfield and Emma Mackey's character, um, because they start having feelings for each other, but they're trying to also keep it professional. And uh, so between the season one and season two. Uh, there, there is something that's starting to develop, but at the end of season two, or midway through season two, Asa Butterfield starts dating his mom. His mom finally gets a boyfriend. Let me, let me explain. Who is played by uh, some uh, Swedish guy who I'm not gonna Mikael Perspant. I'm not gonna. It, and his daughter is half white, half black, and uh, they're going to school together, and they start dating, and shit starts to go sour. Uh, for well, if he, if he don't wash, that's what happens. Yeah. Oh, that's gross. I've got some schmegma here. You we're talking about sex stuff and you just keep giving me these little nuggets of Yep, that's a sex thing. That's it a is. sex thing. That's a sex thing. <laughs> mm, schmegma. Uh but that relationship goes south and he starts trying to rebuild back up with Maeve, who's Emma Mackey's character. And they start connecting and connecting, but then he ends it because he's like, I can't keep doing this because shit's not going the way I want to and my life's getting worse. And then Emma Mackey's character is like, I actually really like him. I should probably try. And then he doesn't come to help her. I can't remember exactly what happens in this. He doesn't come. He doesn't come. He doesn't come and it doesn't help her. Uh, so essentially what happens is, is that, hey, look, because of everything that's happened, they try to end it. And so season three, according to the preview, is him saying, I'm done with Maeve. I am just going to be on my own. I'm just going to be a normal high school kid. Doubtful. And once again, it drew me in because I'm like, now what the fuck's going to happen? I want to know what he does now because if the whole therapy thing he was doing that was actually helping students is no now no longer working or because his relationship with the person he had a crush on uh, kind of went down the toilet. I want to see where it goes. So it piqued okay. my interest, not because of the sex. And don't get me wrong, the first scene is uh, full-blown boobs and two uh, two characters going at it and they're... Who cares? Yeah, that it was like okay, is, that's part of is it. Is that the tone of the show? Is the tone of the show? Yeah, there's going to be naughty bits in there, or is it? Do I have your attention? Great. Here's a different thing. Exactly. That's what it does. It. You're like, wait a minute, and then the whole show's come something completely different. And you're just like, God damn, what a good job, whoever wrote this. I don't like. I said you said the uh, creator's name, but I'm like, good job on the the good bait and switch. Like, yeah, I got your attention, didn't I? Now here's what the show's actually about, motherfuckers. And you're like. Let me ask you. I know it's TV writing. We've discussed this, and 
we stand on fairly different points here. Mm-hmm. But let me ask you. If it weren't banging, what if it's the same location, the same characters, but instead of portraying passion and heading towards disappointment, what if it was just the disappointment? You don't see the sex. People are partially naked. The dude's probably facing away, like, don't touch me, I don't like this. The girl's frustrated, or the, the dude as well, it could be two dudes, doesn't matter. But you don't get the payoff of the, ooh, ooh, naughty bits, yay, sexy time. But instead, the sex happened two minutes prior, and now they're just stuck in this tension of nobody got what they wanted. Just, Would that have been conducive with the tone of the show, or do you just really need that raw experience? No, no, I think it would have been perfectly conducive to the show. I, the show, that would have helped out just as much. If it came in, and instead of being like, boom, sex education, and then these two people are going at it, uh, or it wasn't, and it's just this person sitting there, and him and his girlfriend are frustrated because he isn't getting off, and then you're like, huh, it's still going to pique your interest. What is this show about? It, but it, the, the show is important. you got to catch your audience and say, oh, let's talk about this. Can you believe they showed boobs? I know. Well, the thing is, they also, it's, it's about high schoolers, and it's actually talking about what high schoolers do instead of being like, we're all good and clean and all this. Like, no. Like, even after this, like, the first thing Ace's Butterfield character and his friend, uh, his black gay friend, Eric, uh, they come to the school and he, Eric is going, Hey, you know, high school is all about sex. Like, look at that person over there. They're thinking about how to diddle themselves and this person over here. And it's, it's actually talking about what probably let a lot of high schoolers probably think about. And it catches you on that end. You're just like, wait a minute. Like it isn't just, it, it's about sex, but it's about the high school life and how it's actually portrayed through high school. And well, it, yeah, of course. That's why autocorrect exists. Because Indeed. people miss out on the prime opportunity to squeeze out every possible bit of free education they can at a time in their life when their bodies are saying, hey, man, you know what I feel good right now? Taking somebody's body part and putting it into a different body part. Or just rubbing. That's cool. Touching, licking, whatever. Just fucking, fucking get out there and mix it up. Well, that's, that's, how, said, that's how the this whole... This is algebra two. Come on. That's how the whole premise comes about is that Maeve goes, hey... Like, all the people that he showed earlier is actually, like, that dude spreading crabs to everybody. The girl that actually is over there thinking about sex is worried that if she keeps diddling herself, her shit's going to fall out. And that dude over there actually is sexually frustrated. Or those two over there, it's her first gay relationship. She doesn't know how to react, and her parents don't like it. Can you help them? And his response is no. And then she's like, yeah, I saw what you did. You can help them. You just need to be able to talk to them. And he's like, okay. What a burden to place on someone. One of my questions I had for you, and I, I know the answer. The answer is a different show. But two questions. One, is inexperience a key factor here? In the, for what, which character or? Every character. Is inexperience the key factor? Which is, to me, why it's set in the high school. No one has any idea. They're having the beginning glimpses of what things might be, but they're new at it. So they're bad at it and then they're attacking each other over being new and experienced and super judgy uh, how kids tend to be no well that's one of them so like emma Mackey's character is known as the school slut and she's really not but there's always rumors and shit like any school and she does she sleeps with the captain of the swim team which is i guess the big sport there 
Um, and so it's depending on the, the couple and the people in the show for Asa Butterfield, it's an experience in his dealing with, I guess his parents, um, Eric, the, his character, best friend, Eric is because he's gay and there's not many dudes there, but he has some experience, but he just doesn't know how to make that connection. And later on comes to find out the, uh, the guy you find out who has uh, getting off issues, uh, is actually secretly gay too. And he, he, second season, he finally starts telling Eric that, you know, like he was bullying him because he's gay and he actually has feelings for him. So, so they're, they're... Let, me, let me ask this. Mm-hmm. This doesn't need to be a thing, but I'm going to ask anyway. It's a British show. Yep. Okay. The dynamic here is very, very different than in the States. But you're saying Eric the gay friend, not mm-hmm. Eric the gay friend. Okay. Restate that again. Uh, Nakuti Gatwa plays Eric Effion, who is gay. Yes? Yep. If this was an American show, this would be like a double down, double minority. But this is a British show about American people or British people. And there's still a choice here. The choice is that we're going to portray his best friend or the person they can relate to the most. And maybe the character, Ace of Butterfield's character is alienated. So the response is, okay, extra alienation because you can relate on being marginalized. And that's how you connect. But it would read very, very, very differently if, for example, Eric were Polish or Pakistani or other kind of Hindi, because that would code it to the audience of the British television that, oh, he's one of those people. Not 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 only is he the kind of person that we feel a little mixed about due to some really old messed up hangups, uh, but he also happens to be gay. So he should be similar. Go ahead. No, no. So he ha- he has his issues, and he makes it. So he is a foreign. His parents are from Nigeria, so and his dad doesn't get it because he also likes to dress up as female and stuff. And his dad gives him shit. So they they add into it. Like no, he he's is not a, even. He's. <laughs> I know that gay is easier to reach for, but if we're gonna involve modern conversation, just queer. And he's he's got his. He's got stuff he's into. Yep. And it's put it in a box. But the point is, his dad's like fucking stop it. You dressing that way makes me want to dress that way, and I'm not okay with that. Stop it. So that's that's the thing. Like they even like dad's not cool with it, but mom's like, "You be you, you do you. If that's how you feel comfortable, you dress up the way you want to. But when you're at church, you can't dress that way." Why can't it be reverse? Because it's too radical. I know. What if mom is super not okay, but dad's going, "Hey man, listen, me too. Okay, I like a bunch of stuff. I chose to chose your mom. I chose you. This is a thing." You have to explore this on your own, just not in front of mom, okay? That would be something. I still think the show would be pretty good on that end. It would be a good thing, a topic to hit because, yes, we're getting more modern with with situations like this, uh, with putting, including gay people in things, and and I I fully appreciate that in the situation of TV shows. But we're not clever enough Mm -hmm. to include writing that defies trope types. You have to have enough to hang on to and expect and only have two or three elements to go, oh, that's different. Because if it's all different, nobody wants to watch it. They're too lost, right? Correct. Which is a joke, joke, because what we say as modern is already antiquated compared to what's happening within living society, especially online. But it takes time to A, live through a piece of life, B, write it down, C, get it published, D, get an option, E, produce the fucker, 
and then finally comes out, no pun intended, uh, eight years after the moment had passed. So now it's for the late adopters to go, well, I guess, I guess maybe I could be a friend with a gay. If, if the gay helps me come, I guess that's okay. I, I could see the utility of that. But in the wings is someone else saying, you cannot believe what childhood I fucking lived through. And then that story also has to happen. It's, just, it's a shame there's a delayed response. But at the same time, the delay is necessary to reflect upon structure, format, and pitch, whatever message you want to come across. So thank you for the side discussion of Eric, the character, yeah. in the show I haven't seen. But the other question I have is, what if this show were set in more of a Fight Club context? These are no longer high school people. They know each other through work or whatever. They're in their late 20s, early 30s, and they've spent this time not figuring out any of their shit. So it's still new to all of them, but they have experience and time to press on the unresolved issues they've had since they were teens. How would that integrate, if at all, with this premise? I don't think it would be that good. Because? I don't think the character... If a character like Ace of Butterfield's character was like, okay, now I'm going to start giving everybody sex, sex education advice, even though I now work at a, you know, some corporate office wearing a suit and tie, and these people need some advice. It's going to be, I think it wouldn't set it off right. I think it has to be a younger generation uh, on that end to say, hey, look, like, these people are just now starting this. Someone at that age who may have this advice could probably give it. Someone in their 20s, like you said, they may have more experience. They've been through college. It wouldn't work as well. The story. Well, they have, they have bad experience. They have an extra decade of bad fucking experience. They're still lost and alienated and angry and upset because the issues never got talked about or addressed. But you're, it's a very different tone, isn't it? I think. Yeah, you, as far you've you've gone through two marriages and a bad mortgage, and you still haven't reconciled that you actually like more than just what you had. I think it would be better if Ace's, but if, if it was that done the way you're talking, like if Ace's Butterfield character was a therapist and he's sitting there and these are people that work in a corporate office that he's like connected to or something, and they just come to him. And then it's, what's that show? It's not like Frasier. It might be kind of like Frasier. Like, you occasionally see him talking to each character as they're working through their relationships and seeing him struggle with his. You could do it that route. But I don't think, like, oh, yeah, we're all in an office and one of our coworkers' moms used to be a sex therapist and now he knows everything. So that'd be a little weird. It'd be like us Yeah, work. she used to be a, a sex therapist and she killed herself. He never got over it and hasn't touched his dick yeah, since. Exactly. It's quite infected at this point. Yeah. So that'd be a little... Different show. I would say it would work. But the reason why you say it wouldn't work, and I agree with this, is it's very uncomfortable. Because that's too close to home. Horny high schoolers with no answers? That's relatable and innocent, because who isn't? 30-year-olds with high school-era hang-ups that are just miserable through life and nobody's helping and they're too cowardly to seek out the help? That's maybe a little bit too real. <laughs> People will say, stop. Why can you see through my backyard window? Go away. Enough. Well, one of the one of the scenes that you see Jillian Anderson talking to a couple is that the guy has a pegging fetish. And so <laughs> the first thing he asked the wife was like, well, how do you like your new plastic penis? And that also catches you because there are funny moments like that. You're like, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on a second. And as adults, I think that would, there are situations like that where like, hey, you know, there are things that people aren't going to understand about what you have and what you're into that you could do a show like that, but it would have to be like where one of them 
it's been 10 years. They're out of high school, and Asa Butterfield's character is now a psychiatrist. A sex psychiatrist. No, 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 no. Well, by ability, not by trade. Yeah, by ability. He finished high school, never went to college, worked his way up through a supermarket, decided to take a job somewhere else as an entry-level whatever, and this is his ability to rediscover himself in a new context of, quote, starting over, if you will. And as he looks around to this new population of people, he's the odd person. He's the new person in class with the hearing aids from that thing we talked about. His way of bonding to others is, hey, I noticed you kind of fucked up. Is this what this is? No, I know you don't know me, but I'm asking you, is this what this is? Cool. Hey, uh, we got lunch coming up. You want to talk about it? And the subplot becomes that whatever company he's working in, people catch wind that he's he knows his stuff. And if you're brave enough, you can talk to him. They start approaching him way more often. So now his project manager has to be like, hey, dude, what the fuck? Productivity is actually worsening because you're doing whatever you're doing. Knock that off or I'm contacting HR. Like, <laughs> You see how, yeah, it's a different show. But the intricacy of the relationships is still maintained. It's a disservice to adults to say that this happens in high school and never again. That is too simple. That's willfully simple. That's God looks like I do simple. White Jesus. Whatever you look like, dude. Yep. God, God, God where's your face? But no, I, I agree. There, there. It could be done in an with an older older group of people in an older age bracket. Um, I think it just works well because of the age group they're in. By like you said, like oh yeah, these kids are young and naive, so they're gonna need help. They don't know what life is, but in the end, like you said, like yeah, even adults have hangups. Yeah, said the perfectly well-rounded adult. Yeah. Ah, those fucking kids. Not mean. Uh, can't can't stop staring at his gay neighbors touching himself quietly. <laughs> that that could be a premise. I mean, hell, it. Well, it is. It's called American Beauty. Oh, that's right. That's uh, what's his name? The the sergeant in the military with the. <laughs> His yeah. son's the guy who's the creepy guy who like films a plastic bag and it's supposed yep. to be like Oh, yes. Yeah. Super creepy. Yeah, yeah. The kid who's forcibly on medication <laughs> lives in an ultra strict household where the prized possession is a guy's Nazi plate. Yeah, that creepy kid. Absolutely. It's just he is creepy, completely unrelated to whatever's happening in his life. I don't remember Those... the movie that much. It's a, it's a recommend. It does it, it will look very different to you now than it did whenever you first experienced it. That's one of the ways of having a wrong age, wrong movie for you. (laughs) But that's that's the beauty of having access to a wild library, and perhaps even more so importantly than being subscribed to a service that's on a rotation, so it constantly tells you, hey, you should watch this. All of your peers are loving this. You don't know it for a fact. But it's the number three show in America right now. Watch it. Instead, if you've taken the time to be exposed to something that you chose, and then you participated and said, this is good. I'm going to retain this for later. And then you're going to watch it again at some point in your life to show someone else, to watch it for yourself, to put it on the background. Life will show you a different permutation of factors to engage the medium and get something out of it. I am very much looking forward to whenever it is that I will sit down and watch The Lord of the Rings, the trilogy, probably the expanded version, but, but for realsies. Because that's a series of films that when it was new and fresh, we acquired, we spun all the time. It's just a thing you watch. And at that point, the context was adventuring troop goes to drop off ring. What what do you mean geopolitics? What do you mean the power of faith and human belief and racial tension and allegory and industrialization, yada, yada, yada? No, just some fucking elves and dwarves, man. Just hiking it across the plains, slaying orcs. What else is there to see? And that's just that... 
that's a recognizable property. I mean, <laughs> you show 16-year-old browbeat pig, he's going to say, well, when do they, what, this is boring. When do the guns come out? And then you get your uh, invincible moment. That's the neat thing. They don't. Thanks, dad joke. But I'm using these recent examples so that perhaps some of what I'm talking about bounces off of you, or at least per permeates one of your ear canals and rattles around in your brain. And I like that you're telling me about the show. In fact, this is some of the most cohesive you've been in a lot of things, and you're able to take my what-ifs and roll with them. But I wanted to, to explore that further and further, because then you can take something you see as a valuable property of narrative or portrayal or experience and say, yes, Browbeat, yes, it's set in a high school. That's a given. Besides that, here's what's happening. Because I see a good premise here. I haven't seen the show. I will. I might look into it. It is a show as opposed to a film, so I have difficulty committing to put this on screen for the next 16 hours, and I'll have to parse it apart as episode by episode, arc by arc, season by season. That's taxing for me, but it can be done. I would I'm better say off sit down and watch it with your wife. And that that's going to be harder, but we can do that because she has open tabs in her mind of the things that we're in the middle of. So this would be a show that we'll probably look at at some point based on a, a Nutchuck's recommendation. A surprisingly touching Nutchuck's recommendation, no less. But it's going to be closed out A, B, C, and D. We, we've cleared off four things from our we're doing this together. Now we're going to watch the show. If it's me and her, it's going to take a hot minute. But if it's just me saying, now I'm watching this through my commitment, that's more likely to happen, but it'll be a different experience. So there's merits to both. One just takes way longer. So by the time I bring it up, say, hey, dude, remember the show you talked about? You say, fucking what? It's, it's season, it's season five eight. just came out. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. Okay, well, glad you caught up now. I don't care anymore, but let's hear what you have to say. Not to be so redactive, but hey, this is me saying, Chucks, thanks. At the very least, you're, you're talking me through this. And yeah. you can say, no, dude, it's not bleach. Don't worry. Yes, there's titties, but there's also a point. Come on. Let's yeah. Work with me here. Uh, another show that I finally caught back up on uh, is uh, season two of uh, How I Got Re I Got Reincarnated as a Slime. Um, oh, that's still going. Okay, so that, let's... Let's abandon all premise of of anything deep. Yes. Uh, we've talked about my favorite isekai of Danny Madigan falls into Hollywood movies. Uh, tell me a little more about season two of how, one, that one time I got reincarnated as a jiggly slime. Yeah, so uh, in season two, uh, you catch up with Rimuru uh, and him expanding. It's more about politics in this season. There is some action. The action doesn't come on until like the last four episodes. Uh, but essentially, it's Rimuru trying to settle things with other countries and create create trade. Um, and on the last bit of the season, I mean, that's how lull this season is. But I enjoyed the geopolitics that they had to play. Uh, a country attacks and kills a good majority of his people. So he up and decides to become a demon lord. Um, and by becoming a demon lord, he's able to reincarnate everybody that was killed. I am starting to just sit there and go, this isn't as good as I thought. The first season was better, but there are those instances with TV shows, but that is essentially the premise is geopolitics. Okay. Shit didn't work yeah. out with one country. Neighbors. The premise is neighbors. This I'm the king of my nation. Cool. Meet the neighborhood. Oh, you guys suck. No, we think you suck. Oh, well, everybody else thinks he's good, but this one far West nation uh, because he's taking away trade, they were like, we have to attack and stop him. 
and they do. They ambush him when he's gone. He can't really fight back because they have this special case that he he's encased in that causes him not to be able to uh, fight back. So, uh, it, well, it weakens him. And so what happens from there is that he has to oh. kill all these people. I thought the main character had absolute power. He did, but this special church ability causes them to be able to uh, weaken him, but he doesn't get weak enough. He manages to make a duplicate and escape. Second. Wait a second, wait a second. You said church ability. Spend a moment there, linger. Yeah, Tell so me about the church ability. So the, the, it's called the Western Church, and the church doesn't like him because monsters are monsters and they're evil and they can't do, you're not supposed to be able to do what they're doing. So, uh, He's, there should be no nation of monsters. So they have this ability that encases the city and him when he fights one of the high knights, uh, holy church knights, uh, that causes them to lose power and weaken a lot, uh, get weakened. Uh, In the process, he get, starts getting fought and he loses a lot of his abilities except the great sage and everything else. So he manages to escape, making a duplicate of himself and popping somewhere else while she fights the duplicate. Um, but when he shows... She? The knight, she. the knight is a she. Okay, how how scantily clad is a she? I'm not looking this up. I want to describe this. No, no, she's an all white, uh, fully armored, not scantily clad at all. Uh, but still has long hair. She has short black hair. Oh, okay. So good, good job, anime, defying yep. stereotypes. Uh, yep. This is not a not not a anime. It's actually a a thing. You haven't finished saying what you're saying yet, but I know my expectation will not be met. I know this. Oh, it wasn't even meant for me. So if it's not meant for but, me, <laughs> what you're describing is a cheeky slip of the papacy and its influence over other realms in the domain under the umbrella of what the papacy declares is the domain. And slime king losing powers sure sounds like trade sanctions to me at the behest of this unifying church. So that's intriguing. That's a clever idea. But we have to remind ourselves, anime. So how does it betray that fantastic idea of cheekily saying, my power level's dropping, which is similar to, yeah, your tax bracket's now 67%. Because fuck you, the Pope hate So it, it Go ahead, fight back. Go ahead, see what happens. So he, do, he does try to fight back, and then, like I said, because he's weakened, but when he shows back up... Also, he... uh, also it's the Islamic State, not monsters. Yeah. <laughs> this is a, this is a metaphor for the Crusades. Oh, a fucking yeah, it is. But keep going. <laughs> um, but so essentially, what happens is after he gets out of the fight with her, she's gone, and he shows back up to his village. And because of his powers, and he they drop the little shield over him because thinking he was dead. Uh, they go and attack his village and kill a lot of orcs because his village it started out as orcs, and then all these other monsters. Um, and they kill a lot of his people, including his secretary, essentially, who's the uh, Big titty demon orc girl, um, okay, okay, and that just anime stereotype. I'm not trying to be an asshole here, but that that's just oh, you're doing it justice. You're good so far. Yeah, yeah. Um, so essentially, what happens is after there, he sees it, and this elf comes to him and tells him, "Hey, there's a story about you know being able to resurrect somebody. You sh what do you have to do?" So he discovers that he has to kill ten thousand people, get all their energy and use it, and he'll become a demon lord. So what does he do? He goes to the army that's sitting there and waiting, because they tell him, we'll be back in a week, and you guys need to surrender to our power. The king's there, and so what is... The main character of the slime is called Rimuru, just creates this thing called Megiddo. Biblical reference there, if nobody gets it. A little bit. 
Yep. And it just kills everyone with these little darts through the head. Like little water droplets through the head, I guess, like that are like bullets. And so slimelets. Like, yeah. So he's like, oh, look, I have my 10,000. So now I'm going to become a demon lord. And that's what happens. Uh, and then he comes okay. back. Then he comes back as uh, the. This could uh, also be said as uh, this blood is my blood. This flesh is my flesh. Partake of me. Be, be one with me. And then everyone takes the wafers and they get this really cool idea. We should merge. Yeah, we should like we should like merge you guys. And then Mecha Crisis created. Continue. So essentially what happens from there is is that uh he gets his great sage gets turned into uh ultimate sage, I think Raphael is the power. Another religion reference there. Um and he comes back and he resurrects everybody that was killed. Um and then everybody that he had a trade agreement with shows up and is like, what the fuck happened? Like everybody's saying you became a demon lord, what the fuck is this? And that you resurrected a bunch of people. And then at the same time, you find out this great evil dragon that he's had in there since the beginning of season one from like the first episode is finally set free from his eternal prison because of the powers that he's now gained and his ability to break down the barrier for this dragon. The icon of the six pointed star is emblazoned upon the dragon's belly. Yes. Um, he, he gives him a human form and everybody's just like, what the fuck? the fuck is going on like you've wiped out this power and essentially what the slime Rimuru does is like we're gonna put this guy as the head of the state now uh fuck the church um and that's how it essentially ends is that he's like all right we have this power and no one and the other two people that are there from these powers are like no one else is gonna find out about this this needs to stay quiet because now if they find out you have this fucking supreme power dragon on your side shit is gonna go haywire and everybody's gonna want to kill you and the dragon so let's keep it quiet because this isn't good and that's how that's how it ended, and I was highly disappointed. How are you gonna keep that quiet? Sounds really hard to do. It does. It sounds like it'd be a really hard thing to do. So, season three, maybe uh, I gotta now catch up with uh, Doctor Stone season two, The Great Stone Wars. Mm. No, not... that's, that's that's still going. Good, good. I suppose. Um... Yep. So I, I got a few shows I gotta watch. That I think season two just ended for that too. So I got people. Really enjoy that show, and I don't find any interest to see it. I mean, I understand. I I, I enjoy it just because it's silly and stupid, and it sometimes How's it silly and stupid. People ended, and then the immortals awoke, and now we get to remake technology. And every episode, we learn that they're so much cleverer than we thought they were. Exactly. That's that's how it's kind of silly and stupid. Like, oh, it's been 3,000 years, and I kept count the whole time by counting every second. What? Anime. Yeah, that's, that's all I could tell myself. Uh, anime. Got it. And now and I, I have a degree of tolerance for it, but it's not an infinite cup. That that shit runs out. Oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm the same way. And I, just, I got peaked. I want to see what happens. Like, oh, it's a great... It's science versus, you know, athleticism and everybody needs to be killed because no adults need to exist because adults were the ones who did all this. Like, Oh dear God. Like, okay. I look, 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 brother. I reinvented penicillin. We could save everyone. And brother said, mm, that's dope. Then he picked up a mountain and crushed the guy. Essentially. Fuck you, man. Look what I can do. There's yeah. a, there's a moment. I'm sorry to interrupt you briefly. Uh, I, I told you, I think before that, our D&D &D group had a uh, you guys survived a miracle. 
you, you survived a big thing. Everyone gets a wish, basically. Everyone gets a wondrous item. Did we talk about this? Uh, no. Oh. I've, I've told you about the character that I'm playing that it's all about getting hands on things and throwing them around. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that, that, I mean, usually when players that are experienced, they, this is going to be very anime. You'll love it. Uh, when, when they know what the game is and the DM, the dungeon master says, okay, everyone gets a cool thing. They go to their favorite chapters and their favorite books and say, Ooh, I want this powerful thing. For example, there's one of our players who just, he can't help himself. Uh, do you know the D and D trope about the bags of holding, Chucks? Yeah, but yeah, the bags of holding many things and stuff like that, or something like that. Yes, a bag of holding is a microplanar space. It it is a tear in reality with a finite pocket that you can store stuff in. It's a well known trope in D and D that if you put a bag of holding into a bag of holding, you create an antimatter bomb. It just the collapse wipes out. A certain amount of space. It's just gone. It's swallowed up into nowhere, and the plane has to try and recover somehow. So it's one of those hack things, you know? You just You have that forever. It's an it's a anti-physics solution to a problem. Is that dragon too tough? Well, guess what? Someone's putting a bag into a bag and getting the fuck out of there. So one of our guys uh, naturally, cheekily acquired two bags of holding, but, but a different character's holding one, so it's okay. I'm not doing the thing that I'm doing, wink, wink. Anyway, uh, people start going for their favorite things. They start going for their favorite ability increases because they just want to meta, meta make their character better. That's cool. Uh, the newer players are a little bit lost, so we kind of say, "Hey, like, what do you do? You want to improve an ability that you have, or do a cool new flavored flourish thing, or do you want to do something else?" And my dude, I have an idea of what I want them to be, but also I don't necessarily want to be overpowered. Still, they say, "Well, what does your character want?" And this is a very meaty grabby fighter. I say, isn't there a proud legacy of belts in D&D? The belts increase the character's strength. They say, yeah, absolutely. And I ask them, so what's the what's the parameter of this item? And they tell me. And I find the chapter in the book and say, so you're saying I can have this? Everyone goes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can have one of those. So I, I put on, I acquire that belt. And the character's strength score shoots past mortal realms. Not quite Saitama, but Chucks, I think you have some familiarity with D&D where character stats, you usually don't go past 18. Yeah, you, what'd you get, like a Storm Giant or a Fire Giant? Mount yeah, it's Storm Giant Belt. Well, not, the one that sets strength at 25. Gotcha. And I'll remind you, player characters cap out at 20 for any stat through normal means. So now, within that session, the group began to realize, oh, wait, no, oh, fuck, oh, how strong is that creature? And the numbers kept coming up lower than mine. So they start to understand, oh, no, we made him too strong. So the next session we met, some sanctions were placed on my character saying, yeah, you're like, you got strong really quick and you're not good at it yet, so mishaps will occur. So at one point, I, I told somebody, must not be you, but still, I'll try and keep it brief. Uh, there was a snowy plain monster creature that ambushed the party. And there was a group of caribou that attracted it. So my guy was going to wrestle down one of the caribou as it was fleeing towards the party. And the rolls went well for the getting hands on the thing. And I wanted to do an overhead toss just to throw the elk behind me. That's fun, right? But then I rolled badly in the next attack, so the, the elk ripped in two. I <laughs> tore the front shoulders off of the damn thing. 
And the rear half kept going, so the spine stabbed the character in the shoulder, and he fell down. Uh, and then I tried to, the character tried to throw the upper torso, or the, lower, the rear torso, at the big monster, but again fumbled, and so it tore out the rest of the spinal column, and that impaled one of the character's legs. That was in the head. It was a messy time. It was bad. But it's like, oh, baby gained more strength. Let baby figure out how body works now. So the party basically said, yeah, you're super strong. So if we get a if we get a whiff that you're abusing that power, mind you, this is the group where somebody can just teleport to anybody else's shadow as an action. So magic fuckery is already well in effect. And but this my character's design is fairly simple. He's one of the protagonists of the Yakuza series, perfectly content to wander the world, eat, drink, and be merry, and uphold their vision of justice. But they're not necessarily interested in. We should go find the dragon. Why? What's the what's the, what's the get here? Oh, um, for justice and, and, and the children. Don't forget the children. Okay, cool. I guess. Kids are cool. Let's go. So, not a man of great ambition. Well, the positive outlook here of the, the animu of picking up a mountain, not quite that badly, was an assault on a tower that was a side quest that we were supposed to ignore, but the group rolled with it, so here we are. The idea was, okay, the nimble people scale the wall, get to the top, and start working their way down. And then, use guys, the chuckle fucks, you make a distraction. Well, the distraction doesn't go very well. The guards are actually more distracted by the people who are making a ruckus, dropping people off the side of the tower, or screaming, understandably. So we approach the front door, myself and one other player. The door is locked. The paladin, the one that's with my character, says, I try to batter down the door. Shoulder checks it, nothing happens, kicks it, nothing happens. It's my character's turn. <laughs> is the door locked? Yeah, the door seems locked and barred. Cool. Put my hands in the door and push the door through. The door is barred. Masonry collapses from the inside because they're all well enough that I just press the door through the hinge off the wall itself. Hey, look, the door left. Now there's a door-shaped hole in the front of the tower. And the door is probably close to 8 to 10 feet tall. And because now we have stupid strength, and the party now sees that, oh, the door is off. Well, I'm holding the door, correct? Yes. So we could say that I'm holding an improvised great weapon? Yeah, we could say that. So we have to stop for the evening, but the, just the image of a reasonably large but not a huge human being sort of clapping their hands, getting a nice grip, going oomph, and then the door ceases to be a door and just becomes a large battering board. How does that strike you? That would be intriguing. I would want to see what would happen if just like, all right, well, I got this big weapon. I'm going to just go smash into people with it. Yeah, and if we're really being clever here, if uh, in a world where lightning and, and magic missiles and all kinds of shit exists, if there are some guardsmen going, we got to take him down, they turn the corner and there's just a dude holding the front door, staring them down, going, if you want some, Come on up. They might throw down their weapons. Or they might say, uh, charge, I guess. Blah. Well, fuck. Because all the rules that I have built so far for the character's mechanics still exist. I can still very much make grappling attacks with a door. Now, Chucks, how do you imagine grappling attacks working with doors? How the hell do you grab a big-ass door with one hand and grapple, grapple somebody? Or do you, like... Grab them with your legs? Well, you could do that, 
but if you're using imagination, uh, who's to say I can't use both hands on door, strike and pin a man to a wall with the door, and then begin to batter them? Who's to say I don't take the door, plant it firmly next to me, grab a dude, slam him into the door? The dice rolls are dice rolls. I get two attacks and I get a grapple check. How those things get executed is up to me, and now I have the shared group understanding of fucking strong as a character's reasoning. So I got some options here. Now, numerically speaking, are those the most exciting numbers you're going to see? No. The policeman in the group still has the unholy ability of smite, which is, uh, yeah, I hit a dude, and then I call upon the justice god, and the justice god goes kablammo. I roll a bunch of dice. I deal all the damage. I'm not here to deal with the damage. I'm here to make it exciting and interesting. And as I was reminded a couple times, my character's not that smart. So yeah, you could say, oh dude, if you like file down the edge of the door, it can make it sharp, you can like decapitate dudes. Cool. That doesn't occur to my character. You know what does occur to my character? Surfing on the door down the stairs of the tower. How about that? <laughs> make an athletics check. I'm going to fucking make that check. So again, I'm trying to make this fun because... Other characters, for example, my, my, my wife, she has uh, druid abilities, and it's fairly interesting to say, oh, I have spider walk, so I can just walk up the side. Uh, next turn, I cast lightning. Next turn, I cast lightning. Next turn, I cast moonbeam. You know, that's fun a couple times, but ultimately you feel, oh shit, I'm out of spells, what do I do? Well, I twap him with a stick. Meanwhile, the dude with the door over there is wrecking the room with a piece of their own furniture. That I don't know. That seems more fun to me. That is more fun, actually. I would, uh, I would love just to be running around. Like, did he just smack that dude in half with the fucking giant door? He did. Like, oh shit. There's a reason I thoroughly enjoy fighters that can use improvised weapons, because among other things, yeah, yeah, your plus four sword of whatever the fuck is an effective weapon. But I thought we're painting a picture in a shared world here. What better way to draw attention to what room you're in is to say what's in the room? Candelabras, chairs, maybe a decorative mirror. Because a part of your brain says, oh, there's going to be some Jackie Chan shit happening here. Like, you, quick, name an object. An armoire, okay? <laughs> I'm strong this dual-wield armoires. So who wants to go? And hey, possibly if I'm... Let's be silly. If I'm picking up a dresser and smacking someone and it rolls high or a crit, that dresser might splinter to pieces. Who knows what falls out of the dresser? Or maybe the dude fell down, I pick up the dude. I batter the dude with another dude. But that's yeah. just one particular expression. It's interesting if your characters... I mean, yeah, mechanically speaking, you have to play the game in a competent fashion, but nobody said it had to be optimized and boring. I despise that stuff. And I'm extra worried, too, because... I'm on deck for the next storyteller. And again, just kind of reading the group and reading what they do and how they do, I don't know if I can tell a story they will engage with. They'll interact with it, but I'm here to tell a story besides do, just doing shit. And part of the exercise for them is just blowing off steam, but just doing shit. I'm going to tie this back to both Dr. Stone and Sex Ed, because in both of those cases, you said, Slime and Dr. Stone! I said, ugh, anime. But then... I'm playing a character that physically shouldn't be able to, but the numbers say he can't, so he's using... Hypothetically, if this dude was strong enough, he could caber-toss the fucking tower. Is that your dungeon? Flip! Okay, your dungeon's upside down now. Ha ha ha! That's some anime nonsense. But if you do it artfully, it works. On the other hand, 
you tell me about a show about uh, high schoolers navigating the treacherous waters of sexual maturity. That's good, but I'm going, yeah, but what about, like, what happens later when they grow up? Well, that's that's not the story. The story is about these kids in fucking high school and the slutty mom, okay? That's the story. But I want a different story. Well, you go tell your different story. And I can do that. But I don't know if it's a show anybody would want to watch. Because they stop at the part where teenagers' private parts touch. Whereas I'm thinking... Oh, but like, what does that say about their family history and their ambitions in life and their redefinition and how maybe the main character becomes like a super aggressive incel and leans hard right politically just because he couldn't come when he was 16 that one time? <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's stories to be told there, but I don't think the audience that I have available would appreciate them. Or it hits too close to home, which is why a show about adults as fucked up as these kids would be more difficult to, uh, to stomach. But, I mean, Chucks, this is a good time for you to check in and say, Brow, you sound like a fucking maniac. Or you'd say, yeah, yeah, I see your point. No, no, I, I, I see your point on both. Uh, it, it, it's just, to, to me, it's, you know, I, I get why you want to see those things. Like, everything to me, it's like, yeah, what happens afterwards? Like, when a show ends, like, I want to be like, what happened afterwards, though? Like, or, you... why are you like this? Because they are. No, why are you like this? Because that's how I wrote the character. Okay, fair enough. That's how a lot of it has to be, though. Like, well, that's how I wrote the character. Okay. Gotta take it that way. If we... <laughs> if we come back to Return of the King, uh, the sixth book in the Lord of the Rings cycle, uh, as portrayed in the film, do you remember uh, do you remember the movies at all, dimly, a little bit? Yeah, a little bit. Okay, do you remember the guy in charge of the White City? The guy who was being possessed by the other wizard? No, that's Rohan. That's that's the horse people's town. It's White Run from Skyrim. No, the White City is where the big, big battle in the fields happens, the Pelennor Fields battle. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Do you remember the guy in charge of the city who had to sit in sit in like the side throne, not the main throne? The steward? Slightly, yes. Okay. So upon viewing the film for the first few times, especially as a kid, um, uh, the character, the actor, does a very good job of portraying this character. The, the character comes off as a monstrous asshole. And as a kid, that's just where you stop. You stop at the part where he's an asshole. As an adult with any degree of r rational thinking or empathy, you have to say, yeah, he's an asshole, but how could he be anything else? How could he not be? Look at the position that he's in. Here, uh, run the city while the king traipses off and does whatever. Well, sir, there are kingly duties to figure... You, like, you're in charge of this. Nope, you figure it out. I'm gonna go have sex with elves. Okay, I, I have two sons and they're pressing the military because great evil is coming. I'm not equipped for this kind of office, but I guess I'll run it the best I can and just spiral into man mania and depression and nightmare dreams because the great state that you're in charge of is crumbling at the edges and you're in no position to change that and old rivalries still exist. So it's just, it's hopelessness. It's casual, gradual despair. But there's no time to think about that because our heroic adventurers have arrived saying, rally your forces, stand up against evil! And the attitude is, well, f dude, you just fucking got here, okay? I've been doing this for the last 43 years. I'm tired. I don't love anything anymore. I don't care if my son dies out there. I do, but I can't admit that to myself. You think you're so high and mighty? Fine, fuck it. You go do it. So, that's not the kind of tone we can take in a story. It's not. It makes sense if you think about it, and you can access some of those empathetic or rational points of consideration. 
but the audience just prefers the part where he's an asshole and he dies in a fire. Hence, Dr. Stone. Yes. <laughs> anyway, season two, Dr. Stone, uh, they figure out how to make alchemy, and then Edward Elric comes back to life, right? Yeah, Alphonse does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that. I haven't watched it yet. I got I got to watch it, and then I got a bunch of other sh- stuff I have to watch. Have you played anything besides RE2, or is that the biggest thing you want to b- brag about? Nah, as everybody will watch in this video that just so happened to be stopping at that moment <laughs> um, and restarting now. Uh, oh, no! I, I got Balloon Tower's defense, and I've been playing Hades. You want to spend a few minutes talking about the Hades? Yeah, I think a couple people have been asking us to play it, or where, where is it at is what I've heard. Uh, it's been relayed to me by you, by a friend of the show. Uh, and that is one of the next podcast episodes that will be on, is Hades. Uh, I played it a little bit. It was a roguelike. I was like, okay, it's all right. Uh, then I started playing it a little bit more once I started getting the weapons and getting the game down. Um, it only took me 23 times to get to Hades to finally fight him at the last boss. Um, it's a pain in the ass. It is a roguelike game, so you'll die a bunch, and you're supposed to improve through the whole time. Um, I I can't. You play as Zagreus. You play as Hades' son, Zagreus. With uh, he's trying to find his mom, and Hades doesn't want to hear her name. Um, but his mom is Persephone. Because that that is who's stuck in Hades with uh, him the whole time. For six months out of the year. Did it have to be Persephone? As I understand it, the Greek pantheon is reasonably promiscuous and very queer friendly. So (laughs) who's to say that Persephone is uh, Zegri's mom, you know? Maybe he's one of them bastard kids. Like, yeah, you got god powers, but I don't really care about you. You're not one of my 16 favorite children. Zeus to Hercules, essentially. You're not him. I don't need you. Get out of here, kid. Wait, what can you do? You're really strong? That's all? That's all you do? Just really strong? Okay. Well, here, go kill something over there. I don't care. Um. Yeah, but uh, I I had to play through. Like, the first couple times I was playing it, I was just trying to earn cash and money, and I, I realized that if you want to get farther in the game, you have to earn what they call boons, which are powers from the gods, and then you can constantly improve those, and you have to have those to improve all your skills. Um, to get farther and farther into the dungeons. Um, you go first, you go t- through Tartarus to Asphodel to Elysium, and then you get to the gates once you beat Elysium. And you have bosses in each one. Um, the boss on Tartarus is the fur- the, the furries. You have to get out of a big gay pile of the furries, the furies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the second boss on Asphodel is going to be your Hydra. Um, you have to fight off a of bone Hydra. After that, you have to fight off Theseus and the Minotaur. And once you're from there, you just go through certain stages, collecting more things, and then you fight Hades once Hades finds out that Cerberus let you through. And I couldn't get past him. He killed me. Uh, You have to use power-ups given to him. So you get, uh, oh, what's the drink of the wine? Or drink of the gods? Ambrosia. Ambrosia, thank you. You have to get Ambrosia. And you have to give them to people. In that way, they'll they'll give you power up, so they'll give you special little things. If you give enough to certain characters, um, things will happen. They'll have sex with you. One character is that way. Uh, if you you Thanatos and Megara, if you give them enough, uh, you get to have a. You don't get to see it, but it's implied that they have a threesome. And it's like uh, I guess that's one way to escape in eighties. 
let me just bang my way out At of least here for a little while. Yeah. yeah. Let, let me bang a, a brief respite. Yeah, bang one of the furies and then uh and the the interpretation of death. Like, okay, that that's one way of getting out of here, I guess. But uh every time you die, you get sent back down and uh, everybody talks shit to you. Um except Achilles. Achilles is like, "Oh, you did pretty good. You went this far this time." And every time you improve, they're just like, "Okay, just keep improving. You'll get there." Uh, it is a better game than what I thought originally. Uh, I will keep on playing it until I beat it. And I well, wanna... originally, it's the, the situation was hilarious to me because you touched what is generally considered to be one of the best of the genre, and said, "Yeah, this is all right." And again, it's it's sort of like, well, you have no point of reference. You don't play these games. Uh, Rogue Legacy was a long time ago. I didn't play very much of that. So. Flows, looks, rewards you. Uh, this is Mirror Sheen Hone. And it should be noted that it was made by a company that was actually humane to its employees as a small company. And the results came out better than Super Crunch. Still, separate issue. And you bounced off of it. You said, yeah, just kind of like me. Me. And it could have been other factors in your life. But now that you're spending extra time with it, you're saying, hey, actually, this is not the worst thing ever. Which is nice to hear. Yeah, no, I, I wanted to go back and see, well, anytime you play a game at first, you, you struggle with it and you don't understand the concept of the game. Like, damn it, I just keep keep failing. And you have to find, you know, you have to find your weapon. So there's a sword, there's a spear, there's a shield, there's a gauntlet, uh, there's a bow and arrow, and then there's a gun, kind of. And I like the gauntlets or gloves, power gloves, that you can beat the shit out of everything with because you move, for some reason, you move a little bit faster with those. Um and you can do a little, quite a bit of damage. And I like the way it moves and feels and the different powers and everything you got. So I just, I had to keep playing to figure out what all these powers you could get are. Um, so it, and you, you don't even know, apparently, yet. Because you get powers. Mm -hmm. And they modify and they change. And then certain permutations, certain combinations. And the game basically just keeps whispering, keep playing. No, but keep playing, though. No, but keep playing, though. And rewards are there to be had, big and small. Yep. So when you when you get to the third level, you uh, you piss off one of the gods, no matter what. So if you go with like Artemis, uh, Aphrodite, we'll give powers to Theseus after one of them after you kill the Minotaur or him. So like if the if you like they'll ask for her help, or they'll ask for Athena's help, and they're like, "What the hell? I thought the gods wanted me out of here. Now this one's pissed off because I didn't choose her," which is cool. It's a neat concept. Um, like, yeah, you were getting help from the gods. They told you they wanted to see you, but because you smited them and didn't use any of their powers, fuck you, buddy. I thought that was neat. Um, you can... I guess you can get powers from Hades later on. I'm not 100% sure, because you can give him Ambrosia, too. So I don't know what he's going to give you. I've given Here, Ambrosia... Daddy. Here, Daddy, I brought you sippies. Yeah, I've given everybody... I've given everybody Ambrosia in the game, I believe. I th you slut. Indeed. I'm a slut. And Speaking like, of which, does the horny factor do anything for you? Because people really enjoy these divine portrayals. Yeah, so they're done really well. I like the way Artemis, Aphrodite are portrayed. Poseidon's really good. Zeus is all right. Hermes is okay. Uh, Hades is drawn very, very well, and the way he's portrayed is great. Uh, what was the guy for sleep? I cannot remember his name. Morpheus? Mor not Morpheus. They said sleep. No. It might be Morpheus. I can't remember. He's he's part of he's one of Nix's daughters. So uh, 
He's one of Nix's daughters. That's yeah, that, that's about right, actually. Yeah, in this day and age, I, I I wanted to put both in there in case he identified as something. You know, maybe I was wrong. Um, I can't remember that's his name. Completely unnecessary political commentary. I, I saw something, some kind of um, no, no. My mine is the the one that's unwelcome. I saw some character sheet for some game system saying, "Oh, guys, this is really cool. We can make this into a tabletop thing." And then I look at the character sheet, and then it says, "Get okay, character name, age." pronoun and i thought really here in this medium right here that's the thing we're worried about so not not adventure not the whatever but the pronoun is really important okay we're, we're speaking we're speaking on topics of people getting pissed off at games have you heard about the ragnarok controversy god of war no teach me what's up okay so everybody's getting pissed off about thor and Ungerbota. uh if nobody knows who Ungerbota is, uh, she it would be Loki's mistress, I guess. Uh, she's a giantess. Uh, oh, there, and, there were a lot. Of, there were a lot of key parties in the guards. I'm just saying. So, in the game, she's black, and I guess there was a small sliver of people like, I can't believe you would do that. Why could you make her? I'm like, they don't specify what her skin tone is in the goddamn edits, so it really don't fucking matter. Uh, so a bunch of people got pissed off about that, and then Thor. Looks like uh, you're a drunken, abusive stepfather that people would call. He has like a beer gut and yeah. everything. And it's like, I think... Again, accurate. Yeah, I think it would it'd be pretty accurate. Or if he was, he would be super big arms and maybe a little skinnier. But I think, yeah, he's supposed to portray like a powerlifter-esque and they're doing their own thing. I think they've done pretty damn well on the character design. I can't remember who plays the character, uh, but he is not that tall. But if you want to go look up images right now, uh, and see him like Thor Ryan Hurst plays Thor. I don't know who Ryan Hurst is. Uh, I think they nailed it pretty good. Like that would be a, a, a the way Thor's portrayed a bear drinking, hammer wielding, uh, Jotun killing god of Asgard. I think that would be pretty good just because everybody's seen Chris Hemsworth. Like, oh my god, I can't believe it. They they stuck with him being rare, redhead and having a red beard. That's how he is actually described in the the eddas so i think that was really well done i just i don't know which one's megan girth if no one wants megan girth there's that's his power belt to give him like twice his strength so that makes him super super strong stronger than giants I think, I think my character's wearing that right now actually essentially that's what he's wearing and i i want to see where this game goes but i just couldn't believe there was controversy like oh my god how could they make thor fat and why is this little girl i'm like who gives a shit it's their interpretation of a game they want to make them purple with dildo stick to their head. Let them do it. You don't have to fucking... The expectation is based upon many, many years of popular portrayal of that character in comic media, a very visual medium. Mm -hmm. It is, and people assume that's how he looks, and that's uh, one of the reasons I like Neil Gaiman's uh, Norse mythology. He describes, like, yeah, what what you guys perceived as, like, being... Um, there you Thor, go, essentially something. Thor from the comics... Is not how he's actually portrayed. That's actually pretty funny. That that would be about precise, sir. No, Thor's an asshole. Thor is a fucking asshole. Oh, he happens he... to be the strongest around. Don't piss him off. Trick yeah. him. In fact, he's very easy to trick. Indeed, it's kind of weird. He min maxed. Intelligence was his dump stat. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out. So, like, if, if you know the mythology, he shouldn't have Mjolnir, but I don't know how they're gonna put uh, Atreus because he's technically called Loki because of his mom. Loki's the no, one who... It's, it's, it's Floki. He just misspoke. It's Floki. Oh, it's Floki. Okay. 
but yeah, I want to see how they they bring in the hammer because it's Loki who screws over Thor by taking out of his wife's hair, and then he has to go to these dwarves, uh, Brock and Atri, and the brothers Ivaldi to convince him. And the brothers Ivaldi in this one are the ones that turn into giants, or their dad is, and one of them turns into a dragon. So I, I like where they're going. They're stuck with certain key points in mytho uh, Greek, uh, Greek mythology, Norse mythology, and just change it up slightly. So if anybody wanted to be pissed, they had a bunch of stuff they could point fingers at in the first game. And like, that's not right. But instead, they want to point at character flaws, so fuck them. Um, I don't think it's at all appropriate to list anything pretty much in Norse mythology as firm in its details because it's a collection of myths that are spun together into a chorus and things will change so i remember people being fairly upset that idris elba was heimdall in the marvel movie because there's no norsemen that are like that allegedly but we also have a cosmic space god race that just took up the idea of an aesthetic of the aesir so that was a that was a long time ago weird point that we forgave because Idris Elba is a very satisfying actor. I heard. But he, if you really, go ahead. I heard he hated playing Heimdall. I can believe it. He doesn't have much to do, and I felt very upset that uh, I think it was one of the Thor movies. Doesn't matter. Heimdall sat down. That upset me. Heimdall can't. He fucking can't. He's yeah. cursed and never sit. Yep. But that's okay. We're interpreting things. So if you want to have uh, righteous righteous fervor about your favorite interpretation. I just have to ask, how many dicks does um oh boy, Freyr have? How many dicks does Freyr have? Ooh. Uh, For bonus points, how, how many vaginas does Freyr have? Seven. I don't remember. And sometimes they're not in the same body. Yeah. I mean, sometimes that's... Freyr and Freyr separate. Sometimes they merge. It's a... Uh, you can interpret that a number of ways. But and... uh, what we can say is, them's horny. Yeah, well, yeah. Also, in certain well, certain things in mythology, uh, Odin's wife is Freya, and some it's not. Sometimes Freya is part of that. Uh, the Asgardians, not the Varnir or Varnir. Also, why would why would Odin ever be wed? I don't know. That doesn't make any sense. If he lives off just drinking wine and listening to two crows talk in his ear, I mean, why would he ever need to be wed? He gets enough nagging from the crows. Oh, hey. Well, he also, the, the Norns can't stop talking to him. But the idea of the constructs that we impose, I almost feel like a lot of these structures are post-Christianity, just yeah. kind of written in the margins, like, oh, this is how the relationship worked, as opposed to, yeah, and this and this man and this woman passed each other around to their friends, and then there was a communal thing, and there was a bit of a spat between them, and so-and-so killed so-and-so, but only a little. And then, like, it's hard to explain. You say, uh, they're married. Oh, they're married. Yeah, and let me just project our expectations of what that is collectively, even though every marriage is different. Never mind. Don't don't worry about that part. So, yeah, if, yeah. You, if you listen to the Eddas, it, it does, so they are, they're Christianized because Snorrelson, uh, when he wrote it, was in a, it was at the time when they were burning, like, books like this or anything kept. So he wrote it as, like, a story. Like, oh, yeah, these people were kings of Troy, and they believed this, and they just happened to come up this way, and he was a Thor was a great king of up north and happened to be the son of this great king of Troy after it fell and da da da. da. So he gives a whole little spiel to it and I'm very whole little spiel. Yeah, the, that's all the Eddas are is a whole little spiel. Yeah, it's just you know a eighteen hour spiel. That's all it is. Also, I'm gonna do this. And I shouldn't, but I will anyway. You say if you listen to the Eddas, okay. If you want to listen to the Eddas, I suggest you brush up on your Finno-Ugric languages immediately Indeed. because the Eddas. 
need to be listened to in their original telling. You get to pick which cultural flavor you want and or all of them. And then attempt to retranslate that into English with preserving any degree of the emotional charge of what those songs are. Also, be prepared for lots of repetition as the characters are re-announced frequently during the prose because it's an oral, as in a hearing-based format. You can't read back and say, who is so-and-so? Well, it's the dude, the son of so-and-so who did the thing. Yeah, that dude, that's right, that's right, that's right. Uh, keep going. No, you're going to hear about his, his deeds. You remember Achilles' shield? Let's go back to Achilles' shield. No, please, don't tell me about the shield again. Well, listen, the, the dude's whole history is on this, so we got to address this whole bottle-leaf right now. You start here, and you go counterclockwise. So, yeah, so the closest language they believe that people would have spoke that would have uh, been from Scandinavia would be Icelandic, because uh, it hasn't really evolved in the last, I think they said, like a thousand years. It's I wonder still why. Just being isolated, I guess. I don't know. Oh, uh, right, yeah. I thought, I thought it's because of all the volcanic ash. It just sort of gets stuck in your throat. Yeah. So uh, you you speak funny. But you are correct. It, it, it probably is not a correct interpretation. But, you know, when like you said, taking anything and translating it into English, it's going to be slightly different. But still, if you listen to it, I mean, even then, like, everybody's going to have a different interpretation of that when you read it. And they're going to be like, oh, well, this is what this says, actually. And this is what this means. Like, you're never going to get a full thing. I... I I just enjoy hearing the stories. I like the mythology and I like that Norse can be, all the stories can be slightly changed because depending on where it came from or who said it or how the story was told. And so it's a, it's a neat, I agree. And it, it makes it neat to me. So with, with everybody having this contract, like, Oh my God, I can't believe this happened. Like, blah, 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 blah. and that's how they like groveled on the internet when they were typing it out on their keyboard. Because it introduces uncertainty, and uncertainty is just not sexy at all. You think you have something figured out, life reminds you that's not true, and then you just start panicking, thinking, oh, but then, but what are the implications? Exactly. I thought, I thought it was simple. No. You thought wrong. Never is. Yes. No, nothing ever is. Um, I am excited to see that, though, when it comes out. I want, I want to see how, how each character is played out, because uh, Unger Botha, and this is the last giantess. Or the last giant. Uh, I don't believe that. Yeah, I don't believe it either. I think because uh, I believe they said Tyr was the one who hid them away and sealed up their domain. So I want to see what happens with that. And I want to see what they do with his hand. <laughs> like, yeah, you know that giant pool that you found? I'll, I'll, I'll spoil it for you. It's a gun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what You know that giant pool Yomungandr was in? Yeah, that's actually Fenrir's mouth. You've been just swimming in Fenrir's mouth the whole time. Oh shit! That boy don't gargle. <laughs> yep. Like, yes. You're right. Yes. Yeah. There's, there's multiple things, so I want to see where it goes. I could care less what the characters look like; it's their interpretation. But I guess people do, and it's kind of silly. Well, they do because they identify with the characters established. But we, th th there's so much compromise and reinterpretation that happens in making something like this work. Even the God of War relaunch, such as it was, it's continued storytelling. But it's its own story, but we're going to lean back on, no, the blades are real, and that shit happened. So, uh, as we like to talk on the show, how do you explain to your adopted child what genocide is and why daddy did it a bunch? Um, you could say, oh, daddy was younger and stupider, and whoops, Greece is gone. I uh, hope that doesn't repeat itself here. Wait, what does Ragnarok mean? So, yeah, like I say, it's curious. I want to see how the storytellers filter through and create a narrative within this game. But also, we have to concede that it's a game, so it's going to have bloat that isn't necessary. 
And I think they'll find a way to integrate it pretty well. For example, with a prior game, the entire side quest involving the Valkyrie was satisfying mechanically, but it wasn't necessary to the story being told between a father and son dynamic and the father's haunting past and other forces at play. So you also you sort of have the characters walk down hallways and progression happens at set intervals, but they're well disguised. So you don't know, you know, small boss fights, small upgrades, small thing. Hey, it's, it's, it's the guys. Older brother blinder. There you go. You get you got a little bit of a callback in a boss fight. Fantastic. Let's do that. The expectation for Ragnarok is that it's bigger and badder. It doesn't need to be. But that's what the fans expect. So when you have little betrayals and character changes, it will tend to also look more critically at what the players get to do as they're navigating a pretty well-tightened, polished, written, and acted uh, set of cutscenes and interactions. But you need to have time to sit with these characters too. So I would say the the God of War 2018 relaunch is, I'm going to call it a 15-hour game. What would you say? I'd say you're about right. It took me about 18 hours. I mean, there's always shit to do, but I, <laughs> I'll ambassador it before. I'll say it again. The numbers don't belong. They're unnecessary. But modern convention says, hey, For Honor was popular. Dark Souls is pretty rad. So here you go. Have your world number indicator and then have your combat be stilted that way. There's going to be stuff to do and find, and that does satisfy a very specific part of your brain that I did all the things, I checked off the lists, I found cool doodads, and my numbers went up, and my costume's rad. Cool. I can respect that. I understand this. But if you're selling the game narratively, you need just enough stuff in between pivotal moments to have it matter, whether that's a slow uh, elevator ride or a multi-stage fight with a big dragon that shouldn't be there, but it's there. Uh, that culminates in an amazing shot of your character standing badassfully facing away from the camera, just just shy of the two jaws that fall on the other side of him. Shit, that was great. What more is there? Oh, despair. <laughs> oh. I, I have confidence in that the story itself is going to be good, but it's very much, it isn't necessary, but there could be a line saying, inspired by tales from the following cultures. It could. I would accept that too. What if? It's not going to happen, but what if the original David Jaffe thing happens? And then after Ragnarok, they venture elsewhere if the series continues, if the world doesn't end. And then it ends in Jesus. (laughs) By the end of it all, the slate isn't wiped clean, and whatever the figure of Athena actually is has been divine inspiration, and Kratos was the agent to wipe the world clear for the emergence of the new god. Well, Which that, doesn't make sense timeline-wise, but let's pretend. I would say that would be neat, and I wouldn't mind it. Um, I would love to see, like... Because in the end, I get in certain forms of the Eddas, uh, they, whoever interprets it, like, Boulder becomes metaphorical Jesus. He comes back to life somehow. They never explain how. So, though, he's back, motherfuckers, and now he's the king of the, the Asgardians. And yeah, wasn't there, like, eight survivors? Yeah, there was uh, five. Uh, they never tell you what happens with the Varnir. Were they just like there, like smoking a bowl while all this shit was going down? Yeah, these man, these guys fighting are a trip. <laughs> yeah. Glad we're up here. Yeah, like oh fuck, fuck these guys. We're down here hanging out with the fucking squirrel and the fucking eagle that's chilling on this other giant ass bird's head. Yeah, they're taking bets. There's 20, one bookie fixing all everything. Twenty bucks on the giant shoe leather the leather shoe guy. I'll take that bet, motherfucker. He's going up against the big that- wolf. Is that Tom Bombadil? 
but yeah, no, I, I've always kind of curious on that. But uh, at the end, like you, two people are hidden in a tree, and then those are Adam and Eve, and they recreate Midgard, and that's what the world is today. And it's it's to be like, oh, hey, look, their their religion believes kind of what we our our religion says. It's just done differently, so they believe the same thing. It's just a way to tie I, it in. Yeah, it really sounds like somebody added in a chapter at oh, the end there. Yeah, yeah. Like, we, oh, and then this is how the Christians integrate into this. Yeah, the world ended. Yes, but then. <laughs> But, but then the, Jesus. But then no end then. But then no end then. No end then. <laughs> that, that's, why, that's why it took several missionaries until one of them finally realized, maybe I shouldn't press this. Essentially. What, what, I, it was, that's the interpretation that was given, was that the reason those were done that way is because at the time of book burnings of the old religions and stuff to get rid of it because of Christianity, he was like, look, it's just a story. And look, oh, hey, it's part of Christianity too. They believe the same thing we do. And... It was just essentially a way to kissing their asses. Like, okay, here you go. Don't don't burn my book. It's just how do I get this past? So, what it, this reminds me of what? The Thirteenth Warrior is an awesome movie. It's well based off of a technical thing, but yeah, Beowulf and what, Ibn Fatuda. Ibn Fatuda. I said Fatuda. Yes, yes. It, it's based on stuff that allegedly happened based on record because somebody did survive and go back home and in their written language, published their events that were circulated as myth because it's just too fucking weird to be real. Am I right, guys? But the idea that you're witnessing a people that are very much in the transition of their ways, and the foreigner doesn't understand this because he's never visited. As far as the foreigner thinks, oh, our, our city-state is established, as we talked about, the golden age of Islam. Like, it's going to be great forever. We came from nothing, and now it's going to be great which is why I'm here in the ass end of the world, because I, I coveted the wrong woman. And then these backwards, hairy people get to say, yeah, youngin, one day you'll get it. These are, we're witnessing our old ways of going away. The Christ God has killed our traditions, but we will endure and figure it out and make the best we can. And we don't need your fancy fucking riding to get it done, you understand me? Bring a real horse. <laughs> I, I I think I told you I rewatched I watched that again finally. You did, but I'm I'm never tired of hearing it. So if you want to spout off a couple impressions, I'm here for it. No, no, I I finally understood. Well, when you're a kid, I did, wasn't real big into like, I guess I wouldn't say ancient literature, but older literature. So the yeah. whole Beowulf thing didn't connect until like, you know, oh hey, it's this evil god, and they have this evil lair, and we got to go in there, and oh look, it's a giant fireworm, and I'm like. I see what you guys are doing here. Now I'm making the connections. And hey, this great, powerful leader here who dies at the end, unfortunately. Spoiler alert for anybody who doesn't didn't know that. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it was cool to, to make those connections and to see and how it was written and how he took an actual event of Ibn, Ibn Battuta. I keep wanting to say Fatuta, and I don't know why. Still, either way, people know who I'm talking about. Um, and what he did, and then... Tangling and Beowulf, I believe it's uh, what's the writer's name? Did Jurassic Park? Michael Crichton. Crichton. Michael Crichton. I about said Michael Kreisner. I'm like that. I don't think that's it. I'm doing the Maria Shrivo thing again. Darkling back to the beginning. I love it. And we loop back to the beginning. <laughs> uh, oh, this is the wrong timeline. Shit. <laughs> but I, I, I like what he did. Uh, Michael Crichton, uh, one really good writer. I, I like a lot of his stuff. Uh, I like his movies, even though they're campy. Um, if we take it for a second. Mm -hmm. Beowulf, as a text, 
used to be, I don't know about anymore, but used to be enforced as required reading at a middle or high school level. It is used as an example of what literary language can accomplish. But there's a compromise in the establishment realizing they only have these kids so long and they're going to soak up something, so just try it. But Beowulf is not the kind of story you can really engage in a human level at that age. You, you just can't. Mm -hmm. It'll be more dishonest but appropriate to take a Disney's Marvel property and then have them read the script of that. Like, you've seen the show, I get it, but just read this text, read the novelization of this. You know the events, but pay attention to what the words are saying. Do, does it look any different to you? No? Okay, here's your C+, move on. And the problem is, it's... <laughs> fucking South Park, it's exactly like saying, this is really good, and just like forcing you into the thing, and me saying, okay, your South Park sounds really cool. I want none of it. Uh, I'll learn the memes so we can talk, but then I'll just dismiss it. Same thing happening here. You get so tired of hearing about Beowulf by your ninth grade, let's say, that in your mind it's just dead to you. Whatever it has to tell you, you don't want to hear. But if somebody tells you the same story a different way, then your choices tend to be either to listen, pay attention, get curious, and say, well, what did I miss? And then of your own agency coming back to it. Or saying stuff like, nah, -uh, Thor's not fat, Thor's not fat, I saw Chris Hemsworth's abs. Because you still connected the story in your mind, but he did nothing to grow into it. The, you just read the flat, it, it's, it's like um, anybody tells you that they don't like history, you might get a, a reaction of, what the fuck, how, how can't you? Because all they see are names and dates, and they just remember cramming for quizzes that are inconsequential to their comprehension. But if you find, if you thread that needle, if you make it matter, if you bring it to a level where they understand, where, okay, person of this skin color, person of this skin color, fucky, fucky, kids happen, multiply over time, apartheid. Do you get it? <laughs> that, that's kind of mental gymnastics we have to go through. To make the finer points of our discovery uh, and, and it, our understanding dance with us. Like, why does Beowulf matter? What the fuck? Why does it matter? Some dudes got in a boat, they crossed the channel, they came to a village, shit's fucked. Um, save us. How? Lure him out. Okay. And if you mythologize it, well, an evil witch sent her bastard son to claim the king's treasure, and brave hero defeated the son and made a compact with the witch, and then a dragon ate the kingdom. Yeah, yeah, you're making evocative imagery so it stands out in your mind because if you look around you at that time and age, you see fields and maybe some huts, possibly a palisade, possibly a horsey. You paint loud imagery, it will stand out to you, but you're not supposed to stop at the part where dragon! You're supposed to think, well, what does dragon, what, what does dragon represent? What is dragon really informed by? Because we know that what it does is mighty, and it is to be respected and feared, but it can also be compelled, and it can be diverted and defeated. So what are we actually talking about? That takes a lot of mental effort. That's, that's no fun. Go back to the CG Angelina Jolie titties. But if you get someone to understand that no matter how big and tough and strong you are, warrior man, you also understand that you're going to hit your 40s at some point, and if you have earned nothing by that time, then your chances passed. Your star is faded and you will disappear into the nothingness forever. But if you can make people remember your name and repeat it, maybe you can get a degree of immortality that you covet. You're terrified by, and this whole Christianity thing sounds really iffy. So you're going to do it the way you know how, through tale and song. 
So, it's one man's struggle against infinity, his ultimate demise, and the legacy he left behind. That's kind of a cool story, isn't it? Yes. Also, Chris McGlover was there with his fucked up membrane ear. Uh, Who the hell did Chris McGlover play? Are you shitting me? I haven't seen the CGI one. It just looked terrible to me. Grendel. It did. Okay, I figured when you said his fucked up ear, I was like, he's probably played Grendel, but I'm going to ask anyways. Malkovich was there. Hopkins was there. Hopkins. Other people accrediting was there. H- Hopkins was the king that asked for help, and I believe, what is it, uh, Malkovich plays one of the knights. No, he plays a uh, cardinal. Oh. So he gets pretty close to the truth, but not in all the way. Chucks, overcome your uncanny valley, and then just, at the very least, go in for um, the dick jokes, and go in for Ray Winstone bellowing at the top of his lungs that he is Beowulf. It's... It's a lot better than you think, but you have to be on board, and it is a great companion piece to 13th Warrior. It really is, because Beowulf, the CG movie, is 800% embellishment. Not quite anime, not quite Dr. Stone, but it is the myth. This is what you're hearing when it's told to you as a tale around a fire, whereas 13th Warrior is, by and large, a camera crew following the fuckers in the boat, and just, yep, this is how it went down. Can I get that bowl, please? Thank you. Snot, snot. Air, brush my hair, clean my teeth. Yeah. Well, it's better than nothing. Come on. Oh, uh, that's true. There's Moro Brothers here. There's jizz in there. Ugh. <laughs> All fluids must go. Well, I wonder what so, the Eskimo call that. I don't have a dating word for that. <laughs> we each got our own individual snowballs, okay? We're, cle- we're cleverer. <laughs> so, I mean, if there's if there's a point to that, it's that so often the modern, the new, the right now, full of people who have only been around for so long, which is why high schoolers have a hard time figuring out what fucky fucky is. They there's just not enough attention space or room to consider what happened previously, and that other people may have been in the same place you are now and understood a more and b less. But everything that occurred to them was a human process that still reflected a shared nature that you have with them. Yeah, you grew up to believe different things and hate each other and jerk off in the room alone and sad, or spit out kids you never mean to see again because it meant nothing to you, or build great works that were knocked over by the stiff breeze that one time. That's all part of the fabric that we have, and we have good tales that survive time across mediums. There's value there because it helps us discover part of our place in the nature that surrounds us that we have just no hope of truly getting. We know that pushing stuff does things, pulling stuff does things. And from that, we sort of figure out how we can manipulate physics that we understand to shape our world and create great human works that matter to us as long as we believe in them and we're around to utilize them. But if we just turn a blind eye to that and stick to what we think we know and like, we don't really get very far. And it's important to have stories as fragments of understanding enter our consciousness, help us reflect what it is that we think about ourselves and the world around us, and help it grow over time as checkpoints. Because when we were seven years old, we were very sure about how things worked. Same was true for 17, 27, 37, 47. Roughly 10 years apart, things change pretty drastically. And maybe there's a function that we're just beginning to discover that as you get to your 30s or further, the days speed up, and what you keep with you is a narrower margin. And oftentimes you're very much stuck on the cycle of repetition. That's just what we agreed. We all agreed this is how it's supposed to run. And it's harder 
to reflect on things and to engage things. You're just so busy running as hard as you can just to keep up. That's why it's important to be shown something that you react to emotionally, rationally, on the inside. And if at all possible, you should speak to your peers, to your loved ones, to people you don't like even, politely, if you can, to help exchange that information, to help awaken something and reflect on something. And I know that this particular piece of speech is buried deep within a podcast episode and probably won't reach anybody and makes no sense coming out of me. So I'll just say fucky fucky for a fifth time and help cement a quiet piece of wisdom within a a bundle of vulgarity. Chuck's anything to say? No. Not really? Not. After all that, nothing to say? No, nope, not at all. You you lost me at I have, and then I was like, oh, okay. Well, I'm kidding. No, I... Son of a bitch! <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. I'm not I... reading a script. Let's just stop there. <laughs> uh, no, I, I I wholeheartedly agree with you. Like the you on on the things like when you said about people that don't like history because of the cramming. Um, I like history. If it wasn't for history, it, I wouldn't have learned as much as I have. Because history will teach you everything. Because at some point in time, you're going to have to sit there and go, oh, how did this come about? And when you do, when you find out about it, it's going to make you learn a new topic and everything of the sort. Uh, I was explaining uh, partially, because uh, I am not a physicist, uh, to somebody about uh, Einstein's theory of relativity and how it's the curvature of space and time. And I learned that from history. Uh, to the point where you like you, another point that you brought up was that people will change and your ideas change and you should always go revisit something and you'll learn about it in a different you know through the years it's the same thing with anything I wouldn't say even 10 years five years from now things are going to be different and you're going to have to accept those things and figure out how they affect you and what you should do so I'm, I'm always up for adapting and learning new things that's why I constantly learn new items uh, in my repertoire as much as I can even though I can barely speak when it comes to playing games uh, like disco, which is hilarious. Uh, I would say your your rousing speech there was uh, very antiquated. Not antiquated. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it was great. It, it's that old money, yo. Who cares? Well, thank you. I, I hope that it reached a piece. More importantly, if, if it stirred something within you to say, yeah, like it's, it's valuable to consider and to partake and retell. It does. Anything. <laughs> Anything that, anytime you go into something, you should always revisit it and retell it, um, unless it's just utter garbage. <laughs> like if you're going into something and it's like, oh yeah, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna see how Debbie does Dallas is, you know, forty years after it came out. Yeah, let, let's let's not go there. I mean, if you want to go there, that's up to you. Just don't tell me about it because that that has no precipice on me. Uh, but you, what what if what if what if there's wisdom? even in something like porn. And normally there's not supposed to be because it's not made for that purpose. But maybe every now and then somebody says, well, I'm a creative person and I can't make it in a normal format. But what if I sneak some shit into this? They might not find it, but they're gonna feel something. They will. It's very unlikely. It's monstrously unlikely. But, you know, video games are just stupid blips and bloops, right? They're not supposed to make us feel anything. Just, if the format continues for long enough, and if enough creative energy is used to iterate within it, who knows what's possible? Yeah, I mean, if anything makes you feel something, you should figure out why it does that to you. Now, do I always do that? No, not always. I occasionally will ignore those things and say, fuck it, and ignore it. 
But then when I go back and I'm like, well, I wonder where this came from or I wonder where that came from or why why I felt that way when I did. I'll I'll go back and rewatch something or reread. Well, I, won't, I don't ever read. I listen to Audible, by the way. So that might be why I'm not good with the words. Um, Maybe. These real tricky. Yeah. I, I, I kept saying I read like the Prosettas and everything. I've listened to the Prosettas and all the other Norse mythology and Greek mythology. Um, I actually bought Norse mythology twice because I lost my old Audible account because it wasn't mine. 44 books I lost. Damn. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, not, no. not, not a good feeling. No, no. Well, I wouldn't say they're books. They were college lectures, so I can't say they were books, but it's Audible, so technically they're books, I guess. I'm probably the only human being on planet Earth who's like, you know, I have this giant app that can give me all the books in the world. I'm going to listen to motherfuckers talk about history topics in college lecture form. Let's go, baby. You are not the only person, by far. But the exciting part is you might meet someone else who shares that value among many others of yours. And the thrill of that connection is one of the reasons to keep trying. Keep living. Keep going. Because it's good shit. And you wouldn't know it's there. Now... We have to face a degree of personal hypocrisy that we all engage in, because even by having said how important it is that we engage our feelings, reflect upon it, put it into an intelligible form, and try to communicate that information to somebody else, it's really important. We do frequently still step on rakes by saying, oh, there's a meme about that, and you share a very abstract moment that might be loud, vis-a-vis blazing saddles. Is Blazing Saddles a critique of social norm and attitude wrapped in a raunchy comedy? Absolutely. It is. But so often, your point of introduction is somebody remembering that it exists, finding a loud moment, such as the sheriff entering town, and just laying that on a person first with minimal preamble. And then the person has a fairly high-risk assessment to make. Do I want to go any deeper, or is this the time where I... Turn around and never see this person again. That's intimidating, and that happens far too often. I'm Rick James, bitch. Is that really the best way to begin a Dave Chappelle journey? No, doesn't no, matter. That's the, the that's the one they're going to bring up. Or the black so again, white supremacist. Black white supremacist. That that one first episode. That power. Sure. <laughs> it was the first. It's the first one they saw. They never saw anything else like this. It left an impression. So of course you just paired off the thing that you remember. And yes, memes have a placeholder value. They're very important on a specific functional level for us to retain things. That's why there's a dragon, because if it was your rapey uncle, you wouldn't want to remember. But if it was a dragon, oh, that makes sense. And then he he produced his magic tail lance and entered my secret cave. I guess that's that story makes more sense now, because there was treasure in there. You had to fish it out. Sorry. But <laughs> that's that's how tricky it is to find the connection with someone else because exaggeration does work. Parables do work. They get someone listening, but listening and hearing aren't the same thing. It's if, if you can access a point of curiosity or reflection or agreement, that's good. They might even remember, they might even talk to you about it later. That's something that I seek to gain with other people because I struggle enough in connecting with pretty much anybody because if I'm putting on a role, if I'm just, oh yeah, this is this is how you people, that's not how I feel myself to be. But I can say the words and have polite, social, casual interactions that they give me almost nothing. 
I'm, I might learn something about the person around, but I just have to endure that this is what happens because there's too many people to care about in the world. Everyone knows this, they just don't say it. But then when you want to get to know someone else, you know, those little real moments creep in, I have to be extremely selective in what it is and what pace I approach on, what I'm curious about. And sometimes I just don't have the patience and say, okay, well, let's fuck this bitch right open. What are you about? People aren't equipped to, to go at that pace most of the time. But the reactions, usually they're very informative as far as what I can and can't do. Chucks, I think that you have a much easier time because you just, you have a very dopey effect that you present yourself with. That's not who you are, but that is the mode that you have selected because it's the best in slot. Because typically that's the most disarming to people and they feel comfortable thinking, yeah, this guy means well. He don't, he don't talk too good most of the time, but I see what he's about. Whereas I come out of the gates flying, they feel their asshole just pucker up and they want to walk away. So I have to be very careful what pace I bust in the room or never interact at all. Luckily, other people have said some words that might have been recorded on paper or audio or other formats that we can share on. Say, hmm, story? Yes, yes, story. You know story? I know story. You like story? I like story. Hmm, me too like story. What do you story like about? And the conversation blossoms from there. They're good neutral points, or at least median accessible points of reflection. Like Mank. That's a casual watch. Right? Mank? Mank. What the hell is Mank? <laughs> uh, it's a David Fincher film about... I forget his name, unfortunately. I'm just... Uh, I lost, I, 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 a gear slipped. I can't. Herman J. Mankiewicz. Wow. Who, was the screenplay for Citizen Kane writer allegedly, and this is a uh, reinterpretation. I have heard about this, and I want to see it. I just completely forgot about it, though. Okay, well, it's anything but a casual watch. It is a very involved watch. If you do, that's not a story you start off with. You might have to go to Pickle Rick just to get a baseline reaction analysis, and then go into something else. Well, I, I do. Uh... I'm looking at the Google on it, and it's funny because budget twenty five million, box office one hundred twenty two thousand. But it was released on Netflix. It was a Netflix exclusive, so not a whole lot of releasing in theaters. But Netflix, Hollywood accounting, you never know what the actual story is. Yeah. But I fuck it. It's a Fincher film. I am in. I recently bought. Um, a nice copy of The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which I've only seen once, and I felt tepid about. But you know something? That was damn near 12 years ago. So it's time for a rewatch because, ta-da-da, it's a Fincher film. The fact that Kate Blanchett and Brad Pitt are in it, as well as other actors, that doesn't matter. I'm here for the director of this story because I trust very much that this man is gifted at taking written works and then making those written works sing in a film fashion. I'm less confident in his ability as a series director, which is why he only does guest episodes on things, not a sequence of stories. Because this is an example, I think, where the, the director knows where their strengths lie, and they don't ever swing for something that they know they'd be subpar at. I can respect that. Uh, you got to look at his watch his best film of all time, Alien 3, or Alien 3. Well, that's, that's a polluted statement, but I see what you're saying. Yeah. He shares as much credit as he does with uh, Joss Whedon. Yeah, that that one is more of a... But hey, Alien 3 has Charles Dance in it, so that's already an automatically approved watch. Ha <laughs> ha! 
I guess he did a 20,000 League Under the Sea movie, and I didn't know it came out. I didn't either. It doesn't look But like. these are stories you can further go on and pursue. I also acquired uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I haven't watched since you and I saw it when it was fresh. So I would be curious to see that. Also, I want to watch the Rambo films, which I now have the first three, especially the first movie, because I really want to see it as a gothic nightmare film of a dispossessed military vet. <laughs> I always got a kick out of the sequel. Well, yeah, but it's a different story, isn't it? Well, yeah, and well, well, the way it, what it's called, it's Rambo: First Blood Part Two. What? Yes. Well, like Kill Bill, right? Years before Kill Bill. Well, uh, I didn't know uh, in their books. Of course, they are. Yeah. Nothing original under the sun, right? Uh. Well, speaking of original or the sun, the dude that I sent you the other day, the two and a half hour video by CJ the X, did you watch any of that? I watched an hour and a half. And only about 20 minutes of it was actually what the topic was under the video name. Correct. Uh, do you want to give me just your impressions here on he, record? He actually does a very good job at explaining everything uh, about the song, and I wish that would stop popping up and making everybody hear that chirp sound. Uh, what the fucking Jesus Christ? I don't hear a chirp sound. I know you don't, but they'll hear it. Uh, um, I, I, now, does it, does it help that you know me? Does that make what this person does more accessible when they speak at their cadence? Yes. And I, because uh, I knew the video, I understood what he was going on when he was rambling. Because he, he doesn't ramble. He's just really, really fast about what he's talking about. But I get everything that he's mentioning. Like, oh, yeah, like, hey, he's essentially, this is just an... Uh, a thank you letter to Jeff Bezos. Well, not a thank you letter, like a love song to Jeff Bezos. Like, hey, he he won capitalism. He's done everything humanly possible, and he has won it. And we all just need to give him a round of applause. And the way he comes about it, too, uh, very, very well done. Um, and his knowledge of music and uh, theater is... Well, what did he say about musical theory? It, what was it? If you can't... If you're singing, you need to, I can't remember what the hell he said. God damn it. Don't be, don't be intimidated by musical theory. It's just fancy words for noises you already know. Huh. I forgot about that part. Dude, by the time you finish that, give it a couple days, watch it again. I am very surprised by how good what this is, is. Especially considering the opening minutes where the persona, the character comes on stage and explains what you're probably going to be seeing, which is a lie. That's not what the video is about. Again, two and a half hours. Come on. How did you like the first mislead of this particular stranger that I've shown you on the internet? I, I like that a lot. Well, the way he int introduces it is like, hey, you guys want me to do a whole review on or a deep dive into this comedy bit or his special. I'm not. I'm going to do it about this one bit. And so it just throws you for a curveball. Then he starts talking about transhumanism and everything else and it's like holy shit like this was nothing what i was expecting uh, that could be this transhumanism and everything else dude what <laughs> <laughs> well, that's essentially what it is you're just like wait a fucking minute well there are multiple subjects here including a general celebration of jeff bezos begrudgingly but the idea that let's expose what he came from and what he ended up becoming a part of you has to at least give a golf clap. Like, dude, you, yeah, you did it. You did the thing. You worked your ass off, however you did. Got the tools, scaled up, and now you want capitalism. I mean, I'm not comfortable with that, but I have to acknowledge that you, at the very least, did the thing. 
And he did. He did it. Jeff Bezos has done capitalism very well. And to think that his whole thing started out as a loss. Like, we're going to be well, up. A deliberate loss. And that's a part. I'm not sure how far you got in. I don't know if that whole sequence was finished. But speaking of history, I need you to try and understand pitching something in a committee of people, all of whom have access to at least 10, probably more million dollars personally through assets, to suggest that we're building a platform that will operate at a loss for probably a decade, but the idea is we're quietly gaining market share. People will be pretty squirrelless. They'd say, oh, ooh, I don't, mm, that doesn't, isn't that like a faster payoff? And then just the manic glint in the guy's eye, meeting after meeting to say, well, I need startup to make this work, but this is going somewhere really good, trust me. And somebody might say, who the fuck buys books on the internet? Jesus, come on, you're an idiot. And as the presenter explains, every time there was a concession made, it's always a, hey, buddy, don't you worry, I'm helping you for a nominal fee. But the payoff, the end goal is always there on the horizon. It's fucking visible and it's getting closer and it's getting definition. By the time anybody else knows what the fuck they're looking at, it's too late. It's already there. Mm -hmm. That's vision. That's drive. That is a manic persistence of somebody who gave up on a part of themselves. Doubt is not a feature anymore. He does mention that. He, they even bring up a CEO from another book, book company. It was like, yeah, essentially it was either we, we, you let the Romans be Romans and you do as Romans do when you're in Rome. So you have to essentially let them. That's not the phrase. No, I know it isn't. I'm trying to remember. He says something about Caesar. Render onto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Yes, that's it. Thank you. Which is a wonderfully ego, egomaniacal phrase. Like, who the fuck is Caesar? I'm the guy with the army. Oh, so what do you what do you want? I'll take that. What's that? What's behind you? That's my city. Uh huh. Okay, here's the keys. <laughs> Please take. I'm sorry. And that's essentially, and that's and he states that like, yo, we we essentially had to let him. We had to do what he was saying. If not, we were going to go tits up. And within what the past well, fifteen got, years, hey, yeah, they got ways to recoup, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Running at a loss is not the thing that you think it is. Not really. If it's anybody like a wage worker running at a loss, that's a disaster. That's just what having kids is, really. But the idea also is that if you have enough business entities pulling together. I mean, sometimes you need a loss leader. You need a massive project that's a, that's a drain, but luckily there's other profitable revenue streams that can flex in and fund that drain. So long as it's going somewhere. And sometimes it's going nowhere but the satisfaction of the financier, like somebody just keeping a museum open for the stuff that they like. It's nice that they have it open. It's generating no money, but that's just something they believe in. Other times, like here, this is going to a an ocean of money. But you gotta go through a lot of shitty mountains and valleys before you get to the coast and say, "See, I told you it was here all along." And the doubters say, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I totally believed you. Yeah, yeah. Day one, I was there. I was behind you." So you made an hour and a half in, and there's another hour to go. And I think you're probably surprised by the rhythms of how that particular, let's call it a essay series, how it's going. Yes. Yeah. And the person's diction is. Uh, not quite airtight, but it's very solid. Makes you wonder how many takes it really took in between things. I'd say, well, I'd, yeah, actually, I wouldn't know. Maybe well, not very many. I don't know if the person's still made the concession saying, that there's not a script, I'm just, this is how it is all the time. My friends will tell you, yeah, this is what it's like to be around you when you have a cool idea at 3 a.m. 
So I feel like a kindred spirit a little bit with this particular presenter. But also, I'll remind you, this is the longest video on his channel that has existed. I don't know. A year? I think he said six months when he pulled up the video. Sure. So again, notion being that this is this is an individual that very clearly denotes, you don't know me. This is one facet of my being and expression. Do not make the mistake that we're friends. I'll take your attention. I'll take your dollars. I'll deliver what I'm delivering. I'm selling a piece of my thoughts. Take it or fuck off. In fact, do both. I like that. That's the kind of sincerity that's hard. That's rare to maintain. It's maybe the sincerity is one of the key factors really gravitated towards it. But again, you still got an hour to go, and there's more to do, and it's worth a rewatch once you've chewed on it a little bit. But a different video from this person that I don't care for the subject matter necessarily, but I was interested to hear how they wanted to say it. It was it it connected with me immediately, which warranted a like on the video, and I think you also agree. Just those words weren't put together in the way you heard before, which is the person is not satisfied if you witness art or something evocative within yourself to just say, yeah, it was okay. No. You need to process that. You need to know how you feel about it, put it into words, and share it with somebody else. Because otherwise it wasn't meaningful. It wasn't anything that you actually could share or engage with. Art evokes things in you, and that needs to be offered and interchanged. Which maybe you recognize from your and I interaction, interactions, Mr. Chucks, because frequently I'll ask you how it was blank, and you would say, yeah, it was okay. He said, no, fuck you, that's not enough. Talk to me about this. <laughs> well, see, here's the thing. Like, for me, like, I'll if I just got done doing something, or if it sticks with me really well, like history, uh, for some reason sex education stuck with me really well, I have to go back and either be doing it, freshly just done it, or uh, have recently played it within the last few days or watched it in the last few days um, for it to really stick. Uh, and if it's something like the, this gentleman's talking about, like I'm going to have to watch it once or twice, and I'm going to let it sink in and be like, okay, now I get it. Like how I watched, uh, what's his name? Red Sword? Like, yeah. oh shit, like that, okay. Like I watched the first time, like I kind of, yeah, I can see it now. And then I watched it again. I'm like, shit. Like, okay, yeah, now it's clicking. Like, yeah, that's so oh, shit. I'm looking at this series in a different light now. Yeah. How does this relate to me? Very important question. And oftentimes, it's difficult to enforce. It has to be a choice, not a discipline that you're uh, forcing yourself. But taking notes or knowing that something is clicking and catching, so you just loop it again at a be a slight delay, so that you are prepared for the rhythms at the very least. Like when you walk a trail for the first time, you hope it goes somewhere, and then if you repeat the trail, you have a vague notion of how and why and where you end up, but the journey itself just feels different because now you're walking somewhere you've been that's still new, as opposed to the complete unknown. Maybe taking notes would be helpful to you, because I think in our space.format of reconnecting on things we've seen about a week or two prior, that's helpful. You can structure your thoughts, but immediate, immediate impressions do fade, and distant impressions are a little bit You've chewed on them, but maybe they're not as articulated as they could be. And I just, I choose to aggressively oppose the hunch of, no, no, not good enough. Unless it didn't stick with you, in which case you have to be honest and say, didn't care for it. It was not a meaningful piece of knowledge that I have encountered, and I kept the minimum amount I can. Because we do have a theoretically limited storage capacity in our active memory versus our archives. So I do my very best not to bring you garbage that I expect you not to remember, or I know it's not significant, and then say, hey, Chucks, hey, Chucks, what do you think about this? It would explicitly be for a once-through. 
Like, take a look. Was that okay? Yeah, it was thoroughly okay. I'll get you some more hot dogs. But if I say, okay, dude, I came across this. It caught me. I looked at it again. This has lasting value, at least for consideration, if not uh, future reasoning. Take a look. Luckily, so far, except for Jinro, you've been very good at, at the very least, listening to the intention in my voice and saying, okay, I'll, I will poke at this with a stick, and if, it, if the stick comes back smelling appealing, I might take a bite, and then we'll see where that goes. So thank you for that, at the very least. Yeah, I, like my plan is to watch Jinro. I have not intentionally tried to ignore it. It's every time I've started it, I'm either about to go do something <laughs> or like today, like, oh, shit, I got to get this done because I work tomorrow. Um, uh -huh. Things have come up. And so it, understand. It, it, you know, life, life things. Yeah. Well, when it comes to story life things, fucking talk to me about it. Oh, As yeah. an example, something I can talk to you about that doesn't need to be kept or retained. Uh, I have finished my time with Warhammer 40,000 Inquisitor Martyr. Do you remember this thing at all? That, I talked about it very briefly. That's the new Warhammer game, isn't it? Or is, no, those are. We have talked well, about Well, Steam. Let's see when this came out. Uh, Inquisitor Martyr slash Prophecy is a Diablo like that was released under the license. It is going for 50 bucks on Steam slash 80 or 30 more for the expansion. I got it on deep sale during one of the Sony sales. And uh, I would definitely say it's not worth buying piecemeal. Mostly positive on Steam, but looks of it released June 5th, 2018 on this platform and it's been populating ever since. And I also picked up Chaos Bane, which is the fantasy version, so I thought at the very least, of this kind of concept. What can I say about this? I would say that it is regrettably flawed, but I did spend enough time to, quote, beat it uh, two times and change. And by beat him and finish the, uh, the story campaign missions, because there is a never-ending deluge of additional scenarios and campaigns you can do for experience and loot and skills. In terms of starting with compliments, I would say that it does give you more time and space inside the 40k setting. Outside of fleet battles or tactical gameplay, this is following one character around. I imagine on a PC, you click, drag, and click on things to make things happen. Otherwise, with the controller, you're steering them about and saying, do damage in that direction, using face buttons for abilities. The rollout of the game's mechanics in terms of towns, hubs, and vendors is interesting. Not what I would have expected. And simultaneously, I appreciate it, and it's very frustrating. But which I mean to say, uh, the game starts off with your character, very Dead Space, actually, uh, flying to a ship that they're meaning to investigate with a crew, and then your dinghy gets capsized. Now you're stuck on that ship, and you're just plowing through short mission to short mission, getting transmissions from somebody else on the vessel. And it's not until you're six or seven missions in that you even get a main chamber, a hub to access your stash, to talk to a few NPCs, maybe heal up, and then pick a mission. And then as you go through the campaign scenarios of very, very dryly written dialogue, you will get new people to stand on this command deck and function as either talking heads or other functionary performers that retain skills, items, crafting, doodads. It takes a while. So the gradual rollout of what happens in town and the town changing, that I appreciate. The problem is that this game because of the aesthetics it chooses and locations it chooses, 
feels very stifling. Uh, the the cavernous halls of the spaceships are enormous in their fantasy sci-fi gothic architecture, but even the enormous command deck with its windows uh, looking up up on the ether and the prow of the great vessel that you're on, there's still like 40 square feet to maneuver. Cross the room, talk to this person, dump your gear over here, change your abilities over here, look at your skill trees. The skill trees are intriguing because you get to complete in-game milestones to unlock shared trees across all the characters you have on your account, which is interesting. It, it, the game invites you to replay itself with new characters, but there's a lot more startup momentum that they, occur, they uh, can incur. But the game's opening is the same for the original three characters. The same six, seven missions you have to slog through to figure out what your abilities are, which mostly boil down to, okay, you want to use gun or you want to use sword. If you want to use sword, you're dealing arcs of damage close up. If you use gun, you're pelting large hordes of enemies with whatever munitions you have. Your special abilities tend to be just cones or blobs of damage over time or burst damage. It looks cool for the first 10 missions. You got 60 more to go. So the pace just doesn't change. You fall into a groove. But unlike Diablo 3, where that groove is instantaneous but fluid, here it's broken up, uh, I think, more aggressively through its load into the area, clear out these hallways, mission over, back to, the, back to the bridge of the ship, go again. The loading is not bad, but it breaks pace substantially. I will note, though, that I started playing as the fourth character, first time through, not realizing that is actually a very different campaign. The first three characters share the same mission flow, with the add-ons and all that shit, but the core campaign for the add-on character is very different. And so it, it lent a little bit of longevity to repeating some of the steps, but I think about a quarter of the way into the game, I wasn't enjoying playing the actual game, and that's pretty telling. That's not a good thing. I was excited to see what equipment existed, what abilities there were, what options the game would offer to conquer itself and fight against all the enemies, uh, but you settle into a groove of what works for you early on because you also, your, your characters, as you level up, you hit a certain milestone, level 5, level 10, whatever, and then the game will just start spawning in new equipment for your character as a possible loot drop. So you begin with five flavors of weapon, let's say, very early on, and you're going to pick up one that you like, and the game's going to say, here's seven more weapon types. And you can tell the game, yeah, those are neat, but I already know what I like here, and I'm going to keep using this. I'm just going to make this stronger. So your incentive to switch is actually fairly low because there's a evaluation system of what the gear stats do. You have no incentive to go against the higher number. Higher number gets you more stuff faster. And the leveling process will taper out over level 50 or so, out of 100, I believe. So it'll be slower. The game telling you, you're mature, your unlocks will slow down, pick your options. But again, it already taught you from level 10. This is what works. So just keep doing that until you beat the game. I will say the highlights of the, the additional class, which is the pet class, if you like. I figured out that by min-maxing certain abilities, I could have three big stompy retro robots just follow me around. So those characters, no, normally the pets are summoned by expending a, a mana resource to bring them into being for a limited time until they die. The elite robots, once you get those available as a skill, they just, they're there. You start the mission, they're already there with you. They follow you about, and they do damage. So once that happened, the last third of the playthrough is that character. My character didn't have to fire a weapon at all. Just wander near some enemies, have my big punchy friends bludgeon and flame them to death, and then just wander room to room, scooping up uh, loot. 
Chucks, that's not very engaging gameplay. And I'm very tolerant towards this franchise and the setting. It's nice to see 40k stuff happen. But a lot of it is just shrouded behind explosions and gore blasts of bodies being shredded to bits and extra effects where it becomes noise. Which is unfortunate because that's a stylistic choice based on the art representation, the lighting, the assets, etc. Versus a more appealing cartoony style or more high-fidelity style. It just it, it felt chunky in the bad way. A minor victory in consolation the second time I went through a campaign with the titular character, if you will, the Inquisitor and his power armor with all of his badassery. That was a really cool execution animation. And uh, melee characters can perform executions on larger foes and smaller foes. And like these, there are these opposing, corrupted, metallic dreadnoughts that are walking sarcophagi with cannons, but they have this <clears throat> a metal portcullis in the middle where their, the operator's head was. The execution of the, your character hopping up on the knee of this robot and pulling the head off of the monster, that's okay. Like, it's brutal, but it also feels kind of tame compared to swiping a sword across someone and their body just exploding, right? But there was another execution using... Uh, remember the uh, ATSTs from Star Wars? Yes. This is like a single-person-operated version of a chicken walker with a cabin and a gun. Uh, seeing the portrayal of, the, of your hero whack one of its legs bad enough that the thing lurches forward, then walk up the back of the chicken leg of the second leg, peel off the upper canopy of the unit, and then drag out the pilot and stab them. That's pretty rad. I like that a lot. That's a good, brutal bit of animation. Does it matter? It matters 2% of the time, whenever that happens. Most of the time, you just grimly resolve to yourself, I'm going to come in here, I'm going to wander between these three nodes, activate them, spawn out, level up, and get my loot. So, I thought, maybe if this is fairly fun, I could dra drag Nutchucks into a 40k Diablo-like. But having played it across two characters fairly comprehensively, and then one character just, just to kind of see what the Psyker was all about, I don't think there's going to be any fun for you here, dude. This, this is one of those times you get to say, I did it, so you don't have to. There are better 40k games out there, and maybe one day we'll look at them. If this is on deep, deep sale and you're that curious, okay. For 20 bucks for all the content, I could see the value of you playing it by yourself or us doing a co-op of me saying, I'll, I'll make this smoother for you. But regrettably, the way the game is structured and the way it feels doesn't lend itself to the... The, the, the fun doesn't last the span of the whole game. And that's not something I enjoy saying very much. I uh, think anybody early, saying that. Yeah, like I, I wish this was better. Oh, okay. Well, wish not granted, I guess. Or maybe give it time because there's still seasons and support for this game. So maybe it has another future ahead of itself. Hard to say, based on the time I spent with it, there was a lot of stuff, and some of that stuff was enjoyable in bursts. But it just became this droning piece where I was enjoying other media in the middle of my hands, moving about and doing the thing I had to do. Then again. Uh, so far, very early stages of the um, Chaos Bane, the fantasy version of this same, I think same developer, let me check. But it's also a Diablo-like. Uh, it is so much of Diablo-like that uh, they flat out took the port of Diablo 3, that model, gear, layout, everything, and said, okay, here's your game. So at the very least, by being derivative, it actually happens to be a more enjoyable play experience on console at the very least. 
So bizarrely, I thought I'd be more into 40k less into fantasy. Not so. Chaos Bane appears to be more fun to interact with so far. And I was wrong. A different developer did Chaos Bane than Inquisitor, which does explain why the games feel different at a very core input level. These are still lesser-known studios. They don't have a whole lot of product, products to their name, at least so far. But uh, sometimes I really enjoy examining the middleware, the okay stuff, not the top-tier stuff, because that gets all the attention. Sometimes I want to wander into a territory and say, okay, why did this license holder choose to lend their license to a developer who has an unproven record and for that record to then be tested to say, make me something and make it good because my name's attached to this thing. Those are some of the thoughts that enter my mind as I'm wiping out the next wave of mutants with my rapid fire flintlock pistols. Uh, yes, you heard, you heard me correctly. Fully automatic flintlock pistols. I, uh, I don't know if you've heard, but uh, Warhammer 3 was delayed till next year. 40k. Uh, I'm sorry, you said Warhammer 3? Total War Warhammer 3. Total Warhammer 3. Yeah. Uh, that's that's not a bad thing. Well, again, the Total Warhammer has a proud legacy of way too much DLC to navigate and work through. So I'm not at all surprised by this. I'd rather they do a good job and figure it out before they festoon the store with more release banners and say, okay, good news, guys. We have seven different release editions. Here is the data, data matrix sheet to tell you what you want to buy for how much money to get what. And spoiler... None of those contain all the season passes. So please go to the next page to figure out which subscription chart you want to try and engage. That's true. And that's the one thing I like that they did. Like, even they said, like, hey, this isn't the game isn't where we want it to be. So we're going to keep fixing the bugs until we until it comes out. And they say, what are, you, are you guys done playing Total Warhammer 2? And the fans said, yeah. And the devs said, that's mathematically impossible. We put too much shit in there for you to be done already. Go yeah. think about your life. Essentially, and especially with Creative Assembly's uh, Total War Troy getting shit reviews and being on sale a day after it came out. That's a thing. Yeah. That's definitely a factor, I think. Yeah, they're probably like, well, it's because it's supposed to be Saga, so it's supposed to be just like a snippet, so that's why it's cheaper, but still, when the day after it came out, and they're like, hey, we're putting on sale for the whole month of September, please buy. <laughs> yeah, please buy, that's about right. Like, you know there's some issues, and I'm glad they were like, hey, we're going to fix the shit that may be wrong in this. Like, cool, guys. Let's go back and let's not have this happen. Now, Wait, like, are, you, are you saying the browbeat rule stands firm again? It does. I, I don't think... that I think the browbeat rule stands firm on most things, unless it's Resident Evil. That's the one exception. Well, we all have our weaknesses. We do. I, I, this isn't very good, but I can't help myself. I need it. I need it. Let like, me buy the thing. And say, hey, Chucks, how's your day, day one purchase? That's not very good. Well, you know, you knew what you were getting into. They turned Chris Redfield into a turd. Jill Valentine's a, a, a just a, a, a head with legs. Like, I don't know what they did. But I've got to keep playing it. It's Resident Evil. i got to beat it eight times. Got, got to do it. It's a compulsion. I understand. And I, I've been a Dynasty Warriors apologist for a very long time. But at the same time, they have a very low-hanging fruit to pick, and they say, why do you do the same shit over and over? Well, that's Madden 23 right there. I could see it in your cart from where I'm sitting. Yeah, no, I, I do the same thing. I, I love sports games. When the new NCAA football comes out, I wouldn't be surprised if it was 
they just what they had planned for NCA 15 they just slapped it on and said oh hey it's a new version uh, like we just updated rosters guys like we wait a minute point and laugh. we point and laugh but the sales figures continue to deliver a very grim prognosis well, nobody's learning so they've essentially i think we've talked about this before the new fifa game that came out for the switch has yeah. been the same game since 2018 just with updated yes. rosters we talk about this every year because it happens every year yes yeah well not not on all consoles sometimes they add a new mechanic but then that new mechanic fucks the game up and then they have to start patching shit but this happens every year <laughs> happens all the time don't lie to me chucks all the time it, you're right. You're right. That turd over there is nuttier, and this one's creamier, and this one's got a weird discoloration. But they're all turds, and they come out every year. Sometimes four at a time. Yeah. Uh, so I get it. It's not really worth discussing at this point. Mm-hmm. But but we can at least sometimes I, I do find joy in finding surprisingly satisfying elements in mediocrity or even in in shitbag land. Sometimes it's not good and it shouldn't be good but he did this one thing really well please whoever was responsible for this one mechanic or artistic strike or narrative beat whatever let them find success let them not give up and say everything i do is shit instead they try to gift the world with something better that's satisfying that's good it is well let me wind us down a bit with possibly our last topic would that be okay yeah go right ahead so remember i told you about board games yes I won't shut the fuck up about board games anymore because that's it's a domain I found to be invigorating at the very least. It's my new special interest. I got my hold on something that I am very excited about. Apparently it's hard to get. And here's the good news. It's so simple, even you can play it. Go on. Long pause. Oh, go on. Okay. Uh, I'm going to use two words. You know one of those words. You might know the other, but not what they do together. The first word is risk. You know risk? Oh, I love risk. Cool. I'm going to add the word legacy. Risk legacy? Risk legacy. Type that in. Take a look at the box. Let's take a look. Let me go over here. Uh, let's go clear that out. BGG. What the hell is this? Uh-huh. So, it mechanically plays a lot like the Risk that you know, full of the tropes, and you might even be tempted to play the same house rules that you normally would by saying, hey, no hiding in Australia, all that bullshit, right? It plays like Risk. Now, it does have these five different factions, and um, by the way, uh, when you start playing in your first game, uh, the factions have a menu of powers. You pick one or two, I think, and you have to tear up the other cards. Just gone. Destroyed. Throw them away. Uh, and those powers are permanent to those characters. And uh, given certain milestones you can get to, like, to conquer a certain continent or to uh, be a city or ex- uh, exterminate a species, uh, you also hit milestones that create permanent effects. And Sharpie usage is encouraged because you'll be able to mark up the board and change the state of things. Also, you can nuke cities, and those cities become non-scoring areas for a long time, possibly forever. Uh, And for the first 15 games of Risk that you play with this box, uh, the game state will continue to change. New developments will continue to occur with major and minor effects. And 
it even includes a hidden envelope somewhere in the box that says do not open ever. But you can find it, and you can open it. And when you do, I'm sure something else happened. So with what I said to you, possibly the pictures you're looking at, Chucks, what are you thinking? Uh, giant mech battle in Risk-like style. With... I mean, it, there could be mechs, but some of those guys are wearing literal loincloths. Yeah, I'm assuming you have to advance through the ages. Like, I'm, I haven't... All the images... Yeah. Did, when I pulled up Risk Legacy images, it didn't bring up anything. Like, so the images, all it showed me was like, Risk, Anti-Monopoly, Dark Here. Souls, Risk, 1954 board game, the original Risk, multicolor, Cole, so it's... Nemesis, yeah. There's, there's nothing here. So let me, let me take a look here. So here's a, here's a thing. I'm taking a look. You don't advance through the ages technologically the way you think. This is actually one of those comic book guy things where there are alternate Earths and distinct cultures duking it out. Just, just a bunch of apes in a ball, really, just duking it out. And as we covered before, someone's gonna get the mineral rights, and someone's gonna get shot in the fucking head. Is that dude in a loincloth? No. Is there someone? Yep. So when you say, how can barbarians possibly... Well, the power of the human spirit. They have big walking mechanical cans. We'll topple them over. Get to the squishy bits inside. We covered this minutes ago. Oh, and of course, uh, there are uh, unlockable boxes that will change unit rosters and stuff. I'm excited. I'm excited to play this thing. And it's going to be... I think it's one of the right uh, keystone, Rosetta Stone moments. Because I have Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion, which I haven't run yet because there's a lot of bits and bobs and pieces and people are very concerned why I take two notebooks, open them up, and stack them together into a map. That's a lot to grasp for a human mind. I have Pandemic uh, Legacy Season Zero that I really want to play because it's Cold War spy shit. I'm really excited, but people say this looks like a big commitment. Basic bitch-ass families in America know what risk is. Mm -hmm. But they don't know what this is. But it plays like Risk until it doesn't. So based on everything I'm seeing here, this might be an enticing time because it both taps into the familiar because you know what this is about. And then it also adds the element of, ooh, well, what happens here? And the fact that the game experience is customizable, it's going to be tricky to bring it from crowd to crowd because people want it to be their first time. But this thing is hard to get a hold of because it was released in 2011 and apparently word got around in the circles and it got bought the fuck up because everybody wanted to have their copy, their experience. So I saw it in a uh, local game shop. I didn't know it even existed. And the people who go to the shop, they mostly just play Magic anyway. They don't know this thing is. I said, well, this is coming with me. It's got a carrying handle. It was made for me. I would uh, be excited to see what happens when I bring in somebody and say, oh, let's play this. What are all these scribbles and doodles? Why is the game state affected? What what happened to Chicago? Why is it a crater? Don't worry about it. Pick your pick your favorite thing. Oh, cool. Someone has a picture of a, a barbecue, and they're lighting up the other cards. They're going to burn them versus tear them up. So yeah. do you have any more thoughts on how and why? Because this is a concept they didn't expect to engage in. I'm sure there's hemispheres in your brain raging against each other of, that's not my risk, followed by, ooh, this shit looks cool. I don't have it like, that's not my risk. It uh, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Axis and Allies slightly, because you have to do like oil and everything on that. You have to make sure you have the right resources when you're playing that. It's kind of neat. I, I, I would love to play it, but as you're saying, it's hard to find, because even on Amazon, uh, not Amazon, 
you can't find it new. Nope. But it's twenty five bucks. But I did. <laughs> the um the box that I got actually has a sticker on a seam, like a package sticker. And the sticker says, What is done cannot be undone. I mean, that's just fucking enticing. That's perfect. There was a lot and of again, it. this could be the gateway drug to what other games are there that remember. I go, yeah, let's talk, because Risk is not complicated to play. Well, for the first few games, anyway. Then things begin to, to turn, if you will. Uh, but I'm all about this. I just need committed players that don't flake out. Unfortunately, that's not you. But maybe one day. One day, maybe. I, I did like the one card. It's like it, one of the cards said, I hereby note the names under... I undersign here... Note that by putting my name down that uh, I have started the war and you have to put the date on this and then put your name underneath in the, the blank spot. Yeah, we, the undersigned, take responsibility for the wars that are about to start, the decisions we will make, and the history we will write. Everything that is going to happen is going to happen because of us. Sign your name. This war started on the following date. <laughs> yeah, the commencement card. How can he not love that? How can this not be just a, ooh, let me touch it right now. Yeah. I mean, next you could. I'm sure it exists. Let me, let me fucking, fucking, fucking. Let me see if this is real. Rumbling browbeat is grumbling. Uh, Monopoly Legacy. Uh, no, that does not exist. But there is. Nor should it. There is anti-monopoly. <laughs> uh, given what you just saw and the games that I named that you have no concept of. How does the idea of legacy games strike you? I any like if the, all legacy games are like that, I think that'd be neat. Uh, I don't know. It all depends on how the person does it. I mean, it seems like a neat concept. It all depends on how it's executed. That's a great non-answer. Thank you very much. Anytime. Does it excite you? The idea that let's let's pretend, let's pretend that the impossible happens. Not checks. Mm-hmm. Browbeat and Coinbeaner and possibly guest character all agree to meet twice a week and participate in a box like this. Because a lot of these run between three and five people. Some run with two, and that's, you know, you can, you can, but are, they work best with three and up. And that just becomes a part of the story that we tell because we have personal investment and experiences and times that we made some choices, and you remember, well, well, one time you fucking, you dicked me over, and just that creates this sense of camaraderie and shared storytelling, as we talked about earlier. It ain't D&D. Arguably, it's better. But this is what we're doing, and this is how the story rolls out. I get reasonably excited, just because it's not just because, multiple factors, but in part because it is a shared experience on a rule set that unifies us based on what's in the box, but our interactive human element is what gives it meaning, and creates unique experiences. But uh, just think about that. Like, you look forward to it. It's not just, we're going to kill the troll and take the dungeon. It's uh, the game I just sent you, King's Dilemma. Mm-hmm. we got some more hard decisions to, decisions to make. And fucking Browbeat keeps whispering in the king's ear. And that just means we're going to starve this winter. So we got to find a way to take this guy down through careful political subterfuge. How about that? That uh, both these games look like something, as you talked about. If there was a group of us that could get together and do it uh, every other week or every week, I think that would be exciting and something I would enjoy doing. Only problem is I'm three thousand miles away. 
Yeah, it's a little hard to do, but yeah. plausible. And the middle ground, well, there's two things. One is that you have a pristine board state of thing that's unopened. And if you have a really good time and you play it through once, the game is still playable at its end state. It's not like the game is unplayable. Well, maybe some of them are, actually. But the notion is, you want to play with a new group, they might want a new board. Something like Risk, it's pick up and play enough that somebody can come in in game seven and still have a pretty good time just understanding that things may be unbalanced, and that's the point. Whereas some of the others, once you start, if that group falls apart, well, game over. No one's going to pick up in the middle, right? That's kind of the risk. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's a gamble. That's a gamble he makes 60 to 100 bucks at a time. And when it comes to, say, Gloomhaven, the scenarios are sequential. Your character states are different, but you can always set up and down with what you've found so far. You can backtrack if you really want to. And Gloomhaven is forever, and it's like very close to D&D for, for this kind of purpose. But just more physical, miniature-oriented. But King's Dilemma, I'm looking at this fucking thing, and I'm seeing all the blank, um, all the blank marker cards you can use. So, uh, the Proud Noble House of Wronghole Fucker. Family motto, there is no wrong hole. And they have to take it seriously. They have to say, oh no, can't you be the Baldwins or something? I'll say, hey, 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 same thing. But finding qualified players is hard. I really want to. But this is in part why we're starting with things like Risk Legacy. Because it takes minimal convincing to do that. Although, although we did have our, our trip to Oregon and some of the games I thought would be misses were actually hits because people thought they, they felt that creative or calculating itch inside of them and they thought, ooh, I can pull combos and I can do this, I can be dastardly. Yay! And seeing that get evoked in human beings really excites me. Because that's the stuff I feel all the time, but I'm transparent enough about this to say this this makes me feel good. But the world says, no, never say that. Never let them know this happens. Pretend you don't care about anything but football. That's difficult for me. Maybe not so for you. Maybe it's just, it's all easy. Chucks has just got it solved. I do. That's all I do. I, I solve well, everything. You, you piss excellence. <laughs> I do. When I piss, it's rainbows. Oh, wow. Okay. Your dick is queer. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we should wrap it up here. We're going on uh, almost three and a qu- three quarter hours. Well, no, but I have more. Yeah, you're right. We ought to. I think we expressed a good amount of things, and there's yet more to do. But uh, maybe this is the wrong kind of indulgent for for another Grimecast. Perfect. All right, guys. Well, for Grime and Game, I'm Nutchucks. I'm Coin Beaner. <laughs> And uh, don't forget, guys, if you want to see us play video games live, you can catch us on Twitch. Uh, You can find this podcast on Spotify, Google Podcast. You can even catch it on YouTube with the video game in the background. As I mentioned earlier, the video game this week is Balloon Tower Defense 6. Uh, You can always catch us and tell us what you want us to play as the background or if you want us to record one of the games live and uh, have us talk and do a live podcast with you guys. Uh, But let us know what you want us to play next and what you guys want to see and what topics you want to hear about. So until next time, guys, see you later. Take care.